Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. All right, we are back, Mr. Anderson, and we are diving back into Dune. We're in book two, Muad'Dib, and we are going chapters 23, 24, 25, and 26 for tonight's discussion. And I am excited about this, buddy, because last time we met, things got wild. (laughs) The boy has finally lost his dad. He finally mourned his dad. He had tears coursing down his little Duke cheeks. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are diving in. That's it. That is it. God, you're... You're right. I really do forget that it just ends with crying. <laughs> it, it just ends, ends with him weeping. With crying. Letting it all out. Yep. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, I'm an X-Man mutant and my dad is dead. Yes. Oh, shit. What do I do? The entirety moment, of Arrakis is on my shoulders. I am 16 or so. So what pages are you on here for this? I wonder if ours are the ah, same. True. We I, should start that. I think ours are the same. So, oh, really? Are they? Well, I changed to um, a Kindle version. Yeah, so mine, uh, mine in the new Penguin paperback edition. Uh, book two begins on page three twenty three. Book two, Muad'Dib, and uh, we end tonight's episode on page three eighty eight. Close, we're close. We're a little off, but I have to remember if I fuck with the print size, it's going to for sure throw it off a little. Yeah, yeah. So for sure. I feel bad because I'm kind of abandoning people on book two if they were in that hardcover. But here's the good news. You can still figure it out pretty easily. Chapter 23, we're going to give you all the all the chapter headers. So I think the pages are, are, are a little less important than that because the page numbers may vary between the various editions that people hold. So right, right. that said, why don't you go ahead and take us through the opening of chapter 23? Oh, you got me the big one. <laughs> you got me that big hefty dude, one. Wait till next, wait till episode eight. There's a, a oh, really? full page. Oh, shit. All right. Just keeps outdoing itself. Mm-hmm. All right. So, book two, Muad'Dib. And our first chapter opens with, When my father, the Padishah Emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death and the manner of it, he went into such a rage as we had never before seen. He blamed my mother and the compact forced on him to place a Bene Gesserit on the throne. He blamed the guild and the evil old baron. He blamed everyone in sight, not accepting even me, for he said I was a witch like all the others. Hmm. And when I sought to comfort him, saying it was done according to an older law of self-preservation to which even the most ancient rulers gave allegiance, he sneered at me and asked if I thought him a weakling. I saw then that he had been aroused to this passion not by concern over the dead duke, but by what that death implied for all royalty. As I look back on it, I think there may have been some prescience in my father too, for it is certain that his line and Muad'Dib's shared common ancestry. From In My Father's House by the Princess Irulan. There's, before we get into the the depth of that. There's a lot there's there. There's a weird, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, is this also a moment of, of Princess Irulan just wanting to be related to Muad'Dib so bad? <laughs> of like, our family, like, I think that we, I, there's like probably some of him in us actually, and we're in him. That's probably why yeah. he's got those powers. I think we've determined that she's his biggest fan. Absolutely biggest fan. It it it, it certainly bears some possibility, doesn't it? 
It's like when I claimed for a hot minute in fourth grade that I was related to Jillian Anderson, a.k.a. Scully, because my last name was also Anderson. I was like, yeah, she's one of my aunts. (laughs) I used to tell kids that for no fucking reason at all, just because I was like, well, we have the same last name. Might as well say it. That's excellent. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it, it is interesting because her hindsight on this is what I think is kind of neat, right? Yeah. So we know that this is being written with Irulan's hindsight. So she has some inclination as to what is to come and what has come in more than say we do, maybe even a little bit or so it seems right. But I think one of the more important parts about this is I saw that he had been aroused to this passion, not by concern over the dead Duke, but by what that death implied for all royalty. What I like about that sentence right there is that comes up a lot in these next few chapters. Uh, And it's something that I think is very important that line is going to come up very specifically when we start to discuss what exactly Paul has in mind when, um, when he, uh, when he, when he starts to come up with his plan, we're going to learn about a plan from Paul, not in this chapter, but in the coming chapters. And, uh, and it's, I want us not to lose sight of that line because it does matter as to what Paul thinks in not even this chapter, I think maybe in the, I think maybe in the next chap, no, not even because the next one's through for how what I think when we come back is when kinds uh, reunites, right? I think that's going to be where this line comes up again. So we don't want to lose sight of it here, but just the implications of what it means for all royalty. And I like that it's thrown him into a rage. We don't know anything about the emperor. We're going to glean a little bit about the emperor and what the emperor may even fear and what the what motivates the emperor a little bit, but not a ton. Well, this but is our biggest glimpse. It is. It's, but, but, but the rage is interesting. And to have such rage for something not even regarding the man in question makes you realize that the betrayal of House Atreides, the almost complete destruction of House Atreides on Arrakis has massive implications for a royal, for, 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 the, for the imperial house, for the main house. Because remember, Atreides' house is massive. It's huge. And there is something to be said here. Maybe the emperor thought it was going to go down a little bit differently. Maybe the baron had other plans. Maybe they, maybe they didn't have wasn't- the exact same plan in mind, right? Yeah. Wasn't there was there was some talk though about how the Atreides are a relatively smaller house than some of the other land small but houses? powerful maybe is the better word to say uh with a very right. popular man, right? A, a a great reputation. Yes, that's that's a better way to say it. You're correct. Physically smaller, but not considered a minor house to be clear. Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point because I think still there was a major about house. like they were they were still a major house, but one of the smaller of the major houses, I guess. Smaller in, in probably what they can bring to bear, but, but with a, a tremendous influence because of Leto himself. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive in to the specifics of this chapter. Oh, let's get into it. So Jessica and Paul are, find themselves in a still tent. We know that they have escaped. We know how they escaped last time. We saw some use of the voice, which was excellent. And we learn that there's been a storm. The tent's covered by sand, and they kind of have to dig their way out. And yeah, yes. And uh, 
there's this great moment where Paul is rubbing at the ducal signet that he now wears. And he has this rage against the very substance of the planet which helped kill his father to the point where it sets him trembling. The, 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 the spice itself. It must be so obvious that it's in the air now. They're out in the desert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and you got to imagine that even um, like picking up a handful of the sand on Arrakis, like you could probably sift it around and like see the difference in the color and be mm. like, that's that's spice because it's so absolutely. pervasive. Right, and um, this is... Th- go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I, I just think that's one of the more interesting aspects of it the, that we learn over time that the spice is so much more physically pervasive in just everything and every aspect mm. of it. That's why like... Um, you know, I know that the, 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 I guess I'm jumping ahead slightly because one of the things I do know just slightly about Dune lore is that you can become addicted to the spice just by being on Arrakis. Sure. Cause um, it's in everything. Like Cause it's in everything. Like just by living there, you're going to become slowly addicted to it. That's why they, you know, the, that's why they, they appear the way they do and everything. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I just, I, I just find that an interesting moment of him starting to hate the thing that he knows is going to change his life. Yeah. This is a good moment for us to experience life in the desert, right? We, we've heard about Arrakis. We've heard about the importance of the still suit when Kynes met the Atreides and he met Duke and Paul and, and Paul had this knack for wearing the still suit that Kynes assumed someone showed him, likely a Fremen, which I think Kynes was thinking that's implied in that chapter, right? And now we have this situation where we're seeing the absolute necessity of desert survival and what it means. Not only were they in still tents, which is an interesting uh, piece of science fiction technology, but now they're digging their way out of a sandstorm. So they kind of got buried in a little bit and they're desperately attempting with a receiver to contact friendlies and they're just having no use with it. And it's at this point where Jessica has some excellent thoughts. She says, she refused to accept her thirst. To accept it would require awakening fully into the terrible necessities of Arrakis, where they must guard even fractional traces of moisture, hoarding the few drops in the tent's catch pockets, begrudging a breath wasted on the open air. So much easier to drift back down into sleep. And, and it is. It is... I, I like this idea. One of these ideas you hear about these people who do things like, you know, climb Everest or whatever. They just want to sit down and then that's it. They're done. Right. Just yeah. this idea yeah. of <clears throat> sitting down or, or people lost at sea who just go, fuck it. And they just sink it. There's this sense of release and her idea of just thinking, drifting back down into sleep. But right. that thought is interrupted by a troubling dream. Do you want to talk to me about this dream that Jessica had recently? Ooh, yes, we should talk about it. Um, <laughs> she, she held dreaming hands beneath sand flow where a name had been written, Duke Leto Atreides. The name had blurred with the sand and she had moved to restore it, but the first letter filled before the last was begun. The sand would not stop. Mm. Her dream became wailing, louder and louder, that ridiculous wailing. Part of her mind had realized the, the sound was her own voice as a tiny child, little more than a baby. Yes. But uh, this is where she starts to go into, this is where she starts to go into what was like her Benny Gesserit teaching, right? Like her actually receiving <laughs> some learning. And the more, and the more completely wild 
recurrent or, or occurrence here is the Harkonnen bloodline, right? But she's like I, the Bene Gesserit who bore me, gave me to the sisters because that's what she was commanded to do. Was she glad to rid herself of a Harkonnen child, right? And she's thinking about this a lot. And Paul, meanwhile, is strategizing. And he's thinking, we need to attack them in the spice. We've got to hit them right in the spice, right? <laughs> Kick them low, down in their spice. That's exactly what he's saying. And Jessica's Power. sort of snapped out of this, this thinking about her Benny Gesserit teachings, uh, this idea of uh, her unknown mother. That's one of the things she's thinking about. Who is my mom, she wonders. She just knows that she, is, that she has Harkonnen in her. And thus, as does Paul, right? And she she snapped out of this by thinking, but the whole the whole planet is spice. And I like how we see Paul recounting Dad's teachings about sea and air power, and how desert power exists here, and how that's something we have to consider. And and that the connection between the Fremen and the desert is so close that he realizes the Fremen are the key to this. Yeah, absolutely. Which which is going to be very much countered by the Harkonnen chapter we're going to get to later. But all of this talk is creating this emotional state. So we have a chapter where we have two people who are undergoing tremendous stress. Obviously, we know about Jessica's stress. Obviously, we know about Paul's stress and why. We also have the rigors of the desert world, Arrakis. We also have unknown mother, Benny Jesuit heritage, Harkon heritage, and then this underlying piece, which is some of it, which is summarized by this. All his life, he's been trained to hate Harkonnen. She thought now she, he finds he is Harkonnen because of me. So this is this underlying thing because during this chapter, Jessica starts to realize something. She realizes that, uh-oh, he's got, he's, he's, he's very curt with me. He's angry with me, me specifically. And that, that, that's alarming to her. And, but also understandable based on her knowing about what Paul's revelations are now, right? Right. How much he's seeing into to their family, a.k.a. through the past. Yeah. And I like that. I like that. I like that you, we, we, for 20 chapters, we were told about the Harkonnen and how evil they were. We witnessed their duplicitous and scheming nature. And we know that they are on a collision course with House Atreides. And now we learn that Paul has Harkonnen in him. And on the one hand, we can kind of understand how that would make him feel. And of course, being a young man who's, not fully matured, is going to have some reservations about his mother, who is the Harkonnen piece of this equation, right? It it wasn't Leto. It wasn't Leto. And Leto's now dead. (laughs) And of course, Leto being dead, we're going to do that, vault him into the stratosphere of of perfection, right? Even though he was pretty amazing. But there's that that, that whole, I just love this whole parenting piece of this and, and what she's contending with as a mom and what he's contending with as an adolescent boy. And uh, I right. can't, I can't really speak for this personally because I was not ever a duke, and uh, my father wasn't <laughs> slain by our house enemy by betraying us with a souk school doctor who was suborned. However, I was sixteen with a single mom when I was in Florida, and and it can be very very difficult 
when you start getting to an age and you're confused by your masculine presence and you're wondering, like, am I the man of the house? Like, what's going on? And your mom's like, no, I control the house. You know, like it's, (laughs) so it's interesting to watch Jessica observing the growth of Paul in these moments as the world is sort of thrust upon him. Yeah. No, very well said. Very well said. And like, especially the idea of, of Paul wrestling with, you know, almost who he feels more loyal to in the sense, like who's going to influence his decision-making more. And, and, and certainly in this moment, and this is, this is Jessica feeling it and realizing it like, Oh, he's not going to look to, to my way of thinking. He's going to, he's going to scorn that part of himself. Like he's going, he's going to try to be more like his father here. Um, and you can see that kind of like that, that tension and unease in Paul. Mm, it's great. So they decide to venture out past the still scent, past, past the safety of the still tents, Matthew. And Jessica's considering how they've survived, but of course there's going to now be a price on their heads. And she starts to, you know, uh, contemplate this idea of the oldest purpose in her own usefulness. I think this is a direct representation of Paul's importance and Paul's growth as a man, right? Interesting. I like this. Yeah. I like that she she starts to... I believe it is. Here it is. Jessica, not, Jessica followed automatically. So she's, he's kind of saying, let's go here. Let's go there. There's this, there's this interesting moment in this chapter where they think about, yeah. uh, with their um, dynamic um, kind of shifts. Yeah. And they're thinking about predators and stuff and some, and some good reading there. But Jessica basically just notes that she's sort of following along. And this is a great word in her son's orbit. Ah, yeah. I think <laughs> everyone knows people who have existed in other people's orbits before and may have existed in other people's orbits themselves. I know I've been in orbits and I have had people orbiting me. So I, 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 and not as a parent, by the way, so that's going to be something I can't really speak to super effectively. But I like the idea of her considering her usefulness being in her son's orbit, thinking something like, this world has emptied me of all but the oldest purpose, tomorrow's life, right? This is very primal. Um, uh, it's very primal for a seemingly advanced civilization where Jessica likely considers that this is what her life has been distilled down into. Yeah, yeah. All I mean, when you think about, from her point of view too, it, it's such a it's such a long fall. <laughs> the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, her entire life has been about connecting these almost super ancient purposes. Like everything is so complex. Everything is headed towards this, like, you know, this, this destiny convergence of, of all of these, you know, plans being laid out, plans upon plans. Yes. And now her life is down back down to just like, nah, you just need to worry about where you're going to get your next sip of water to next, stay alive. Next, that's and, it. And to keep the unborn daughter of new life. That's, that's, that's huge. Right, it's interesting. Too. We we kind of we drift back into uh, is it Ma- Maslow's? Is that his name? Hierarchy of needs. I might be mispronouncing that. I apologize. But just this idea of there are certain things you can pursue and certain th- certain things you can't pursue based on you know if you have a roof, if you have food. Like you're not if you are if you are surviving in the middle of a desert and you have no shelter and no food you're not going to probably stop and sit down and read Nietzsche, right? That, <laughs> right. That's later, you're, right? You're, you're, or your, your indulgence into, say, philosophy is going to have to wait. no time, no mm-hmm. time to develop the frontal cortex. Nah. Yes. <laughs> way too busy in the back of the brain. I'm thinking about reading Jung. Oh, wait a minute. I need to eat. 
So, it, <laughs> oh, wait it, a minute. Hyenas are chasing me <laughs> right, right now right. at this moment. Oh, shit. So just this idea of her sort of distilling her existence down into the simplest idea of survival, thinking I now live for my young Duke and the daughter yet to be, and that's it. Your house is gone. You don't return to your bedchambers to feel the comforting you embrace. You represent, right? <laughs> right. Right. You don't represent anything anymore. Either. Mm-hmm. Like you've been kind of like everything, all of those aspects of your identity have kind of all been knocked off in one big blow. And mm-hmm. so it's like, well, you're not a, you're not a, a, the ducal concubine anymore. You're not really Benny Jesuit almost anymore. Like they, they're not going to put their hands on this fucking mess. Sure. <laughs> not sure. in some direct way. That's for sure. And, and, it's, um, and, and so it, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump on you. You're getting excited. No, I know it's good. I mean, and no, I only just mean that in the sense of like they are they are more isolated now than either of them have ever been. Like they've lived lives of being so surrounded and 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 part of these big purposes. Absolutely, it's a, it's a chapter. So if you, if we want to think me, like in a meta sense, like the structure of this novel for just a second, it's just a chapter to check in on Jessica and Paul because we have to, right? We yeah. have to, and we have to show them. Uh, dealing with the arduous nature of travel in Arrakis, you could have spent a whole, a whole, a whole chapter doing that in just them thinking about how much the stinks and we miss Leto. That would be a much more amateurish way to write this, right? <laughs> but instead, we have this connection and all these underlying factors that really flesh these two out to make them real characters, and I like that a lot. That's something this book does a lot, and then. Some some beautiful landscapes. I just imagine them walking with the rock faces up above them, and then just this orange rip, this burst, yeah. fire, purple las guns. They just madness starts to erupt off in the distance, and they go, "Whoa, must be Harkonnen thopters hunting us!" Right? <laughs> just tracing the ground with lasers, hunting. So, down. so they decide, okay, we need to, uh, <laughs> we need to take cover. So they decide that they're going to head route, head south, keep to the rocks, and uh, getting caught in the open is a death sentence. So off they go, <laughs> waiting for uh, Duncan Idaho as well. That is what they're they're hoping to rendezvous <laughs> with. Is is Duncan supposed to be making his way out to a certain point for them? That's right. They're hoping to get picked up, and that concludes yep. chapter twenty three, Matt. <clears throat> so a good little a good little touchstone, right? How our new prescient boy is doing. Struggling, in a sense. Indeed. But it's, also it's, it, book two is, let's check in on the remnants of the Atreides house. <laughs> it's all been <laughs> smashed with a hammer. Let's check out the fragments, yeah. Which brings us to chapter 24, Matthew, which brings us to the Mentap master of assassins, Thufir Hawat. But before we get to him, let's read the intro. So chapter 24 starts as follows. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. Quote, something cannot emerge from nothing, end quote, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. (laughs) You could teach a whole semester on that paragraph. For real. (laughs) <laughs> you can go down a lot of rabbit holes with that. So here's what I like about the open of this. Truth comes close to being the basis for all morality, which I find interesting because certain truths inform how one may behave as a moral actor, correct? And then you have the other right. piece of this, which I think is really profound, to be frank, which is 
something cannot emerge from nothing. This might seem like a throwaway line, but this gets back to a lot of the philosophy inside Herbert as he as he started to pour onto his uh, little typewriter all of these uh, wonderful uh, chapters that we're going to read through. But that is very much a religious thought process, right? That's very much... Uh, that's very much, uh, it's not, you wouldn't call that empiricism, right? Isn't that more rationalism? It seems reasonable right. to be. suggest. So to say something like empiricism, maybe, yeah, I yeah, guess yeah, yeah. Be closer to, I don't know. In this case, something cannot, that's the claim. Something can, something cannot emerge from nothing. Um, is an interesting thing to say because he's also talking about, how the basis for all morality comes from truth. So I like that. I like, he's talking about how unstable the truth can be. Right. Right. What the truth even is, is such a wobbling, you know, changeable thing at all times. Right. Absolutely. And, and I just like this, something cannot emerge from nothing. That's something that is constantly challenged. I think in Dune because that, that something cannot emerge from nothing specifically. Yeah, I think it plays into it a little bit because we're we're hearing about prophecy. What is prophecy other than emerging something emerging from nothing? What right. what That's, is what is to, to get to get metaphysical? What is God other than the manifestation of nothing from something? Something from nothing, right? So right. we we always see it's that's what I mean. You if you're a staunch atheist, you probably are, do say, you know, something cannot emerge from nothing. That just doesn't happen. Whereas if you, if you, if you're not, if you're more religious type, you're going to say, well, no, that absolutely can happen. And it does constantly. And I think that's always for sure. At least once (laughs) that's a tug of war. I think in this, in this novel quite a bit, but more specifically not to get lost in those weeds that the, the truth comes close to being the base for all morality, but how unstable the truth can be, which is directly saying how unstable can morality be if the truth sort of oscillates. And the truth is something that we're going to really get into again throughout this novel because deception is a weapon. And the thing that we've been saying for this entire book is that deception has always been a weapon and it is a great weapon. We're also going to learn about the truth and how that is going to be a weapon, which I think is very cool in a little bit of a flip on how deception's been a weapon the whole book, right? And that yeah. deception's going to inform, and that truth might inform morality. And shockingly enough, I think we're going to hear Baron Harkonnen talk about the truth a little bit. And I like that. So again, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting tidbits in the front of these that do play off a little bit later as we go. But in this, in this chapter, we're going with Thufir Hawat, who is, of course, alive and with the Fremen, Right. Yes, indeed. Alive and struggling hard out here in the desert with his men, yep. his battered crew, barely Bad. barely alive. We're we're in the midst. We basically come in media res to them losing one of their men. Like they're in the they're they're in the process of dying. Yep. So they are in dire straits. Dire straits. Thufir is alive. He went from remember three hundred troops to pick pick your finest three hundred. Correct. Down to yep. twenty of which half are wounded, and as you pointed out, one is dying. Thufir has 10 able men, 10 wounded men, and he's about to lose one of those wounded men. And he is playing this over and over in his head. He's a mentat. We met, we met Thufir, and we came to know him 
quite well when he had his little verbal sparring session with Jessica. And he thinks this is the worst night of my life. He's been in terrible places before. And he thought, this is just a raid. This is simply just a raid. And then he realized that legions were landing, right? Two legions at Carthag, five legions, 50, brigade, 50 brigades attacking the Duke's main base at Arakeen, a legion at Ars, uh, I think it says Arsunt, two battle groups at Splintered Rock. Then the reports became more detailed. Imperial Sardukar are among them, legions of them. And he starts to wonder what is going on. They knew exactly where to hit them. Precise, superb intelligence. He, Hawat is beside himself. He is shocked with fury, hiding in the desert, cold, with the last of his men barely clinging to it. And he's thinking about this, and he's imagining how did it come to this. He's weighing the size of the attack, Matt. For a full attack, you'd have maybe 10 brigades, right? But well, exactly, that's what he says. For a full attack, they'd expected no more than 10 brigades. And uh, he knows notes that there were more than 2,000 ships down on Arrakis at the last count. Not just lighters, but frigates, scouts, monitors, crushers, troop carriers, dump boxes. Uh, so yeah, just an, an entire brigades. A, a fleet. A fleet came upon them. <laughs> 10 legions. <laughs> and as a mentat would be, he considers, how? How did they pay for this? How did they get this much? How did they leverage this much strength against this? Of course, he's still fantasizing about strangling Jessica to death because he assumes that she was the betrayer. She let the house shield down. She must have fed them all the right. facts. That explains the intelligence they could have had, right? He hears Gurney get off the planet, which he's happy to know about. But he considers how did this happen? How? And dude, honestly, I want to linger on one line from this because I feel like it implies a little more about the lead up to this entire conspiracy and why the Baron is involved and why the Emperor is involved. Um, he mm-hmm. says the entire spice income of Arrakis for 50 years yep. might just cover the cost of such a venture. It might. Might. Um, and that makes me go... Well, then this is obviously far more funded by the emperor themselves yes. than we have realized. Like far more. It would have to be. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we, we get the idea that the Harkonnen house is probably slightly bigger, maybe more powerful, more rich than the Atreides. Slightly. But comparable. Like they're of comparable size. And they are each just individual major houses in the Landstrad. And then there's the emperor. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well that money had to have come from him. There's no other way. Like that, that's, that's the only way they could have ever afforded something this insane because they had control of Arrakis for 80 years and there's still no way they could have done this. Absolutely. No way to do it. And even more horrifying to a man like Hawat, no way to prove it. He considers there's no proof. There's no data to present to the high council of the Lanzarod. Justice can't be done. There's nothing to tell them. We have nothing to say. He can't believe it. But yes. Shit position. <laughs> I, I think what you said needs to be repeated. 50 years of spice income from Arrakis to pay for this. 50 maybe could pay for it. Yeah. Accounting for no cost. Just full income. Straight profit, right? Yeah. Net, net profit. 
uh, we're going to have this reinforced again when we talk about Baron Harkonnen later. He brings up the similar numbers. And um, yeah, it is, it's, it's alarming to Hawat. And, and he's so, a man like Hawat operates on, on facts. He operates on data. He operates on precision. And the precision is baffling him. The precision meaning, meaning that when he starts to do the math, when he starts to do the mentat stuff, he's baffled by it. He doesn't know, he has no answers. Not only that, but what I think is so interesting about Hawat's position here is that he also, even though it's such an overwhelming force, you would think with such an overwhelming force, you would have evidence aplenty. But it, he's even saying it's, it, there isn't even any evidence. I, I, I wouldn't know how to begin to, to, to appeal to the high council. Yeah. Like how, how do you even go up against that? It's they're They're just in the worst possible position. 100%. Now think back on an earlier chapter, Matt, where Jessica talked to the shout out mapes. When Jessica talked to the shout out mapes, we, we got ourselves a little bit of an indication as to the difficulty we would see, although she navigated it quite well, but the difficulty we might see when mixing the Atreides with the Fremen and the culture differences. We saw a little bit with Kynes, but remember, Kynes is an imperial man, so he understands how to go about dealing with houses. Even though he mm-hmm. is Fremen, even though he has gone dances with Fremen, he does know... <laughs> he's gone full. Yeah. He's gone full dances with Fremen. He does. Uh, he is distinctly aware on how to deal with the House of the Imperium. Here right. is our best moment in this book so far of indicating just how different these two peoples are in the communication barrier that exists between them when it comes to discussing Thufir, how it's wounded men. Yeah. Yeah. This no, is I totally excellent. Agree. It's, it's fantastic. Great like, I mean, dialogue one, writing. Right, right. And like, we should, we of course got to just get into like what they're talking about as well. But I, I think even just from a writing perspective, I've never seen the idea or the or the just the event of a communication a language miscommunication happening and people not understanding one another captured so well because mm-hmm. um, i feel like it, it's a very hard thing to capture you can't just put down what people say because on paper you'd still be able to sort of just follow it and 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 kind of put it yes. together like we do in conversation where you're like oh i can still piece it together and you kind of just go past it um, this really forces you to see them as two ships passing by each other, right? where there's these moments where you're like, I don't know what that means. He doesn't know what that means. He's realizing he doesn't know what that means and that they are each on different levels and different planes. Uh, and it's just such a cool moment. Like it's I, captured I, so perfectly well, like how hard he's having to think to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What could this mean? I, I love, I love that you put it that way. I like that. It's funny. Cause I know, I know you're pretty well read and I, and I'm, and I'm happy that you're recognizing or, or maybe I'm just happy to to know that you agree with the way I see this because I like I, I value your opinion on stuff like dialogue writing, especially as it goes in a novel, and how utterly baffled Hawat is. On top of you know, this is something movies struggle to do, which is we just gave you what's going on in Hawat's head right now, right? Yeah, a hundred yeah. legions, fifty years of spice income. My men are dying. I'm cold. I'm miserable. It had to be Jessica. I should have killed her. That's another thing he probably has feels terrible about an oversight, right? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, <laughs> by the way, I don't know how to talk to this man who's, let's be frank, 
our life is in his hand. Yeah. I yeah, think exactly. the best way to do this justice, Matt, might be just to read a bunch of it. Because <laughs> I'm fucking down. You are you down with that? I don't want to belabor it too much, but we'll talk about this. But it, it will the wounded come up, right? And he, he's like, you know, can you help my wounded? To which the Fremen just says, they are wounded. And this frustrates a while. He's like, I, I fucking know they're wounded. We know they're wounded. That's not the point. He's like, peace, peace, friend, peace. Because he's getting hot under the collar. What do your wounded say? Right? So the Fremen says, what do your wounded say? Are there those among them who can see the water need of your tribe? To which Hawat says, we haven't talked about water. So <laughs> let's stop right here and analyze this. This is beautiful. This yeah. is the Fremen's talking about life. Hawat's thinking he's talking about literal water. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. This is the disconnect through the entire conversation. And then it continues. Take me through the next even, little bit of this. Oh, go ahead. Well, just, I wanted to say real quick too, like even I just love the idea that these like assumptions that live within these, these sentences, like where the Fremen says, what do your wounded say? And Hawat doesn't even address that because it's, right. it's very like, I mean, he, he says that we'd have, we haven't talked about water, but he doesn't even address what the wounded are saying. Cause it's like in, in our mind, you know, cause you know, we're arguably closer to the culture of the Atreides, you know, of like course. This is how we think. Um, and you know, in our mind, it's like, who cares what they're saying? We want to help We need them. to take care of them. Right. Like who cares what they're literally talking about? Like we're not going to think about the conversation or even if they're saying they're in pain. Yeah, that's, that's one thing, but we'd have nothing to fix that pain with. Do you like, it's just a right. completely different assumption about that sentence. And then hit and then, love it. and then the Fremen point of view is we're not talking about frivolous conversation. We're talking about life and death and the decision that has to be made. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's why Hawassic, we haven't talked about water. And I love, this is, this is where the writing's very good. We haven't talked about water, Hawat says. And then he gets interrupted by the Fremen saying, I can understand your reluctance. They are your friends, your tribe's men, right? <laughs> In other words, I'm talking about, we're going to decide now if they should live or die. And, and typically- Dude, this is him. Right? This is him putting on the kid gloves. That's Absolutely. what I just realized about this too. This is him realizing like, oh, you are like, oh, maybe this is tough for you guys. You're a different culture than us. And like, this is harder on you. Like he's kind of yeah, having yeah. a he moment of like it. leaning down a little bit. Yeah. Yes. And they talk about, do you have water? <laughs> not enough. And then he sort of starts, you know, looking at Hawat who seems disheveled. And he's like, look, you got caught in the CH without your suits. You must make a water decision, friend. Can we, and, and uh, so this goes right over Hawat's head, which is remarkable because he's super perspective. And he just says, oh, I see. Then can we hire you? That's what you're saying. And he's like, you have no water. How many of your wounded? Like it's so obvious. Right. And here's the real dark part of this convo. How many of your wounded would you spend? <laughs> so <laughs> here's what we know about what that means. Cause we're going to make water out of them. Yeah. We will distill them. We will distill We're going to put your friends their through bodies. a Brita filter. We're going to Brita them up real nice. We're going to squeeze them like lemons, dude. <laughs> We're going to squish <laughs> your dead friend, dead and dying friends through a Brita filter and twist it around and wring out that good yummy water. I like how Hawaii uh, realizes uh, we're out of phase here. Like he's like, we're not, we're not communicating, right? He starts to realize this words are not being <laughs> <Yes>. linked. <laughs> and that's when he says, listen, let me give you a promissory note. 
uh, help preserve my forest long enough to, so I can kill a traitor. And he's like, ah, Vendetta. The Fremen gets this, right? You want <laughs> us to help you with the Vendetta? He's like, no, 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 no. No, I want you, I want to be freed of the responsibility of my wounded. <laughs> which, which, in Hawat's head, I leave him behind, you guys treat him, you, you know, you pet him on the head, you wrap him up in bandages. <laughs> That's not what the Fremen's thinking. He's thinking, Oh, you want to put the responsibility of me deciding if they live or die on me. <laughs> so they're still not communicating this simple fact. How can we, how can you be responsible for your wounded? They are their own responsibility. The water's at issue, through for Howard. Would you have me make that decision, take that decision away from you? In other words, he's saying in our world, these wounded decide if they're going to live or die themselves. Right. They are in charge. They decide. And I like when he says, would you have me take that decision away from you? And he reaches for his knife as a gesture of like, oh, I'm going to decide if they live or die. And Juan's like, oh shit, am I getting betrayed right now? And it shows how bad their communication is. (laughs) And when he realizes Hawat gets tense, he's like, what do you fear? (laughs) (laughs) And Hawat's like, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> dude there was still some of this i did i didn't even fully pick up on until you know hearing your point of view on it, it I, I think that's cr- what's what's so fantastic about it and like what a great little moment of 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 him realizing again and 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 like kind of leaning down and being more gentle and being like wait what mm-hmm. is it you fear like like mm-hmm. i still don't get it i don't get what's going on but i'm gonna still keep asking like i'm being patient right funny uh, and it continues where he's like, oh, there's a price in her head. And the friend is like, aha, I see. And that's when he thinks, I love this line. You this think so we have the Byzantine corruption. <laughs> that, you think we are the IRS. That is a tattoo, man. That's such a good quote, meaning we don't care about your silly head prices. We have a much different currency in our world, my friend. And it's water, <laughs> period. And that's when he's like, you don't know us. The Harkonnens have not water enough to buy the smallest child among us, right? <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, you got the fighting ships. I was like, well, we both fight Harkonnen. So now how it's like, okay, wait a minute. He starts a different strategy. He's like, well, we both fight the Harkonnen. Should we not share our problems? And he's like, well, we are sharing. I have seen you fight the Harkonnens. You're good. There'd be times I'd appreciate you are on beside me. And Hawat's like, say where my arm may help you. So Hawat's almost saying, let, then, then let us. And he's like, well, I don't know. There are Harkonnen forces everywhere, but you still have not made the water decision or put it to your wounded. The water decision or put it to your wounded. And that's where Hawat gives pause. He's like, okay, I'm not understanding. He thinks this in the novel. I'm not understanding yeah. something here. I have to be cautious. I love that. Hawat's starting to pick up yeah. on this, right? That moment of like, I can't, start making promises exactly yet. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't have enough information to know what I'm committing myself to. Uh, it's so it's such a good, like the, like I, I've never seen that feeling captured so well of like, you know, you knowing that you don't understand, but still having to like proceed. He, he, in, in Hawat's like, teach me the Arakeen way. I, I love that. He's just sort of like mercy. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, okay here's some things you should consider. And he says, you have no seal soaps, no water. You will not last long. And then it comes to what do you do with your wounded? So now he wants like, wait a minute, 
Let me ask him, right? And that's when the Fremen starts to go, well, listen, does a man not know when he is worth saving? I love that line. That speaks <laughs> of a very harsh fucking life. Very harsh culture. Of right? People, people who know I'm dead. Like, there's no saving Move, me. Don't keep, even attempt to. It's, it's, it's almost cliche in the hero movie to be like, Gabe, go and run, leave me, you know? But that's literally what they do, right? <laughs> that's literally it, yeah. <laughs> You're wounded. And not even that. It's just, I'm wounded, water special. The amount of water expended to assist me, it, it's so, it's, it's got such a dark transactional quality to it. But it is, it's a simple dollars and cents game, except with water, i.e. life, which is the effort required to eat this celery is not worth the amount of caloric expenditure it's going to take to eat it, right? This is the thing you hear about, you know, climbing Everest again. You don't eat snow. Why? Because you'll burn, you'll die. You will, you will eat snow and it will burn more calories than, you're, than it takes to get the sustenance you're getting, right? There's all these little silly rules about stuff like this that people don't think about. But these Fremen, here's this crazy situation where he's like, you're wounded. No, you have no water. He's like, they know you don't have water, okay? This is a time for a water decision. Both wounded and unwounded must look to the tribe's future, right? And that's when Huat has this moment like, wow, yes, the Atreides is a tribe, isn't it, right? And uh, he kind of deflects because he asks about the Duke and he's like, their fate. Fate's the same for everyone. <laughs> I love that. Fate is the same for everyone. <laughs> meaning we're all on road to death eventually right and that's when they start talking about the el uh the the lisan el gaib etc and um and uh it gets back to the men and i like when we get to uh after they so they talk about the boy a little bit they talk about uh they're staring out across the stand realizing Iraq's voice have you heard of duncan idaho he was in the great house when the shield went down um, so she's like, ah, oh, she dropped the shield. That bandages are at witch, right? He's, they're getting back to some of the logistics of the thing that happened. Right. And just asking them how much they know about what mm -hmm. has happened. Because like, that's another thing we don't really quite know fully about the Fremen yet is how removed are they from what's happening in, in, you know, the, the, in the capital? Like how, like how they, they seem so far away and how like plugged into the politics are the Fremen. All we have seen are go-betweens between other factions and the Fremen. Yes. Um, like we're not used to seeing like Fremen who are out there for their own fucking purposes, period. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and that's, I, I find interesting that as we go forward here. And, and I think Hawat needed a breath of fresh air after his confusion with the needs of the tribe and the water decisions and the literal versus the, the figurative and, 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 and to talk a little bit about logistics and to bring up Paul and, and to learn a little bit more. And that's when they get into the weapons the Harkonnen used, artillery. And we learn that Liette a leader of the Fremen, is curious about this weaponry. He wants to know about it. And then he just sort of haphazardly <laughs> says, oh, we, we have one. Yeah. We have yeah, one. we went and got one. He's like, wait, what do you mean you, you took one? We lost two men and spilled the water for more than a hundred of theirs. And it's at this moment where Hawa goes, those were fucking Sardukar. Yeah. The desert madman speaks casually of losing only two men against Sardukar. Right. Uh, because, dude, we have only built up the Sardaukar at this point as the most unstoppable fucking force in the universe. Like, anytime they are referred to, they are referred to as, like, the end-all, be-all. 
um, of like, you know, and we, we have much to be afraid of, but of course the Sardaukar, like that was always the, the end of every sentence about the possible looming threat of, of being attacked that if there were Sardaukar involved, it's, it's over, it's done. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment, like I, this is why I'm harping on it for so much. This is the first moment in the book, first moment in the story where we get somebody go, ah, uh, yeah, I just iced them. No fucking problem. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. We lost he, two guys. He, he even says some of them are good fighters. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, them. they were actually, that was a good fight. Not all of them. But, but I like this moment where he realizes, cause even Hawat's men were like, did you say Saduka? Saduka, the front man said, ah, that's right. Ah, this is a great, that's right. That's who they were. He's like, yet they were Harkonnen clothing. How strange. <laughs> so I love him saying that because it shows that how hard is it to trick the Fremen with, with like a costume swap? Like they were, <laughs> exactly. they were, they're savvy enough to realize that those are actually Sardaukar dressed as Harkonnen men. And that's when Huat's like, ah, the emperor does not wish to know he's fighting against this great house. He's like, but you know, he's like, yeah, but who am I? He's like, you're Thuvar Hawat. <laughs> <laughs> and then we learn, oh, we captured Sardaukar. Wait, what? Only yeah. three of them? <laughs> Only three. You have three Sadrakar that you've captured. <laughs> yes. <laughs> only if only we'd had time to link up with these Fremen, Fufir thought. So we get yeah, back, no shit. Uh, no shit. So we get back to this water discussion, and Hawat sort of backs himself into a good thing here because he says, I serve the Lisan El Gaib. His welfare is my concern. I've pledged myself to this. You pledge to his water? Again with the water. Hawat's like, God damn it. Yeah. Uh, yes, to his water. Yes. Yes. And he's like, Oh. So you want to go to Arakeen to the place of his water? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, why didn't you say that? That's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. And dude, good. yeah, you're you're totally right about him backing into it. Uh right. and being like he pledges to something without fully understanding it. I serve the little guy that sounds really important to you yeah, like, yeah. it's like a little bit like that yeah um, Al uh, yeah that great. one paul that's the one yep he's the one <laughs> yes that's what you think of him sure great hell yeah he's my boy that's uh way back uh, big time yeah big time big- lots of lessons <laughs> i yelled at him for sitting with his back to the door once <laughs> the dude standing outside of the dance club in Boston holding up a picture of mark Wahlberg. like i was in the same history class as him dude yeah it's the one that's me. Yep. Oh, fuck. Uh, and then Arky dies, the bond of water. It's a sign. So the Fremen take his death with their discussion as almost a sign. And um, this starts to get a little bit tense here. And uh, Yes, I love this. You know, he, he says, the bond of water. Watson said, let our tribes be joined, the Fremen says. And, of course, there's this. And what I love about this is that the, the, the tension is kicked off between, you know, the, the Fremen and the rest of the men when they come down and grab the body mm-hmm. and a big part of that is because they do already understand about Fremen culture that Fremen don't bury their dead. Sure. Um, like people already have this idea or a notion and in a fairly accurate one, I think we find out about what the Fremen do with their dead. Like they know that they essentially dissolve them in some sort of way, process them. Yeah. Um, like they're aware of that. So that's the immediate, they're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. we didn't agree to this. We didn't mm-hmm. agree to this happening to our friend. Um, and that's when they fucking start picking up laser guns. Yeah, they they start inching forward, and he's like, "Wait, Arky, where 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 are you taking? He's like, where is he? The paradise, right?" And 
if he served Lisa Nagib, you serve as you have said. Why raise mourning cries? And oh, here's what I like about this part of this, Matt, is they actually misinterpret the anger of their men as going, oh, you want to come to the ceremony. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? right. Versus, oh, "Oh, your men wish to attend. Versus, oh, you want to cut us in half because we're going to grind your friend up. Like, they they see, it's funny, they have the same disconnect with their culture when it comes to the the Atreides culture here. They're going to render Arky down for his water. (laughs) Men, they don't like the sound of that. Nobody likes the sound of that. Mm. (laughs) But... They kind of relent when he says, we're going to treat your comrade with the same reverence we treat our own, okay? This is the bond of water. We know the rights. A man's flesh is his own. The water belongs to the tribe. And that's when he realizes, we're going to get you back to Arakeen. And they go, okay. Like, that sounds good. We're going to kill Harkonnens together. We've joined with these people. Are you buying hell with Arky's water? Are we buying hell with Arky's water? And he's like, not buying. We've joined. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in. in. We're in it now, buddy. We will kill Harkonnens, <laughs> the Fremen said. He grinned. And Sardukar. And dude, I don't want to go past that moment, too, where where even in the midst of Howat, you know, who we got to remember is a Mintat, even in the midst of his not understanding what's going on, he has the absolute good sense to stop his men from doing anything, from reacting yeah. in a harsh way. He screams out, literally, stop right where you are. And he has a great, a great quote. Um, uh, These people respect our dead. And then this is the part. Customs differ, but the meaning's the same. Right. That is, if that is, if that is a precept that could actually be kept in mind, that would solve half of the wars in the world. <laughs> like <laughs> sure. literally. Sure, sure. That's that's kind of it. Like it, it's perfect. It's so it's such a mintat summarization. I love it. Yep, totally. And that's when uh, this party gets broken up a little, and an aircraft arrives, and they're told to conceal themselves, and. This gets wild. Dude, yeah. Um, I did not expect the ending of this chapter. That fucking took me, that took me by surprise. Right. <laughs> did not see this shit coming. So they conceal themselves, uh, and uh, this is where they, they, they shoot this little bat out into the air, the sender raven. This is, this Dude, is the after Ar- gives it a <laughs> gives it a nice yummy drop of spit. Yeah, this is the, uh, <laughs> this is the, uh, uh, the uh, Arakeen version of the uh, of the uh, what is it Westeros uh, Westeros Ravens is to Arakeen <laughs> exactly. bats right <laughs> Arakeen info bats and it sputters off. So my little friend carried a message. He's a good messenger. I'll be unhappy to lose that one. I love that because that's just talking about that 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 sentence seemingly throwaway is just a the inevitability of it all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 oh dude this this just leads into such a fucking great moment of them of watching the carnage that's about to just unleash watching the fremen at work right so exactly. well let me try to stage this a little bit so we have a we be silent now the fremen whispered a pile of plodding figures emerged from a break in the opposite cliff heading directly across the sink to what they appeared to be fremen but a curiously inept band he counted six men, making heavy going of it over the dunes. A thwock thwock of ornithopter wings sounded high to the right behind Tawat's group. The craft came over the cliff wall above them, and Atreides stopped her with Harkonnen battle colors splashed on it, right? 
So essentially, the Thopter circles and then lands. Five men swarmed out of the Thopter, and Huat saw the dust-repellent shimmering of shields. And then we go, oh, those are Sardukar. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> right? These are the real fucking deal, yeah. And then, so Arrakis, uh, five eggs to Thopter, they're Sardukar. And then we see the six Fremen. And then tons just pop up from the sand. There's sand goes up in the air from the Thopter wings. And when it settles, everyone is down except the Fremen. Everybody. There's three, in the, it, it, there's I, I, three in the chapter, right? Three in the my favorite my favorite line about the Fremen as as they are being you know encroached by the surrounding Sardaukar is the Fremen stood in a compact group apparently indifferent <laughs> like they don't even look at it, you know they don't look like they're ready to fight even they're still just kind of standing there pretty lack you know pretty lackadaisically just like whatever I'm not even worried yep those were Sardaukar behind the Hawat one of his men whispered and the Fremen says did you notice how well they fought. <laughs> so they end up capturing the Thopter. So they they snag the three out, and that's it. The um, the Sardaukar get dropped, and the Thopter, the Fremen capture the Thopter. A Fremen signals that more are coming, and then a large troop carrier lands. The Fremen take the captured pow- Thopter up. They turn and fucking power dive it into the troop carrier, blowing it up, killing themselves in a hundred troops. <laughs> that's some fucking commitment that's amazing this is yeah this is a moment man yep. this is the moment we see them they, they we understand what makes the fremen truly formidable yes we do have to be reminded though that we're not dealing with bumbling idiots because in the carnage and in the madness a rain of blue uniforms came over the cliff wall in front of them falling in low suspense or slowness in the flashing instant, Hawat had time to see that they were Sadrukah, hard faces set in battle frenzy. That they were unshielded and each carried a knife in one hand, a stunner in the other. A throwing knife caught Hawat's Fremen companion in the throat, hurling him backward, twisting face down. Hawat, Hawat had only time to draw his own knife before blackness of a stunner projectile felled him. So, good job, but God, they got grabbed. The Sadrukah Remind us, we can still get you. I like Dude, how they I, are described as coming in with their shields down and knives in hand because they're trying to be sneaky, and it worked. It worked. Fucking worked. And dude, I, I just, what a moment for, for this chapter, too, because I, I'll admit I was fully lulled into the idea that this Fremen that we've been speaking absolutely. with this entire chapter is going to become someone. Like, they're going to become a He's got a name, right? He's got a name. Right. He's going to have a name. We're going to learn about this guy. Boom. Gone. Like, I, it just completely took me by surprise. I was like, holy shit. I really thought this was going to be, you know, like, this would be somebody that we might see Thufir with in the future and stuff and interacting further with. And, like, that's kind of, like, his outlet or conduit to the uh, the Fremen. But just gone. Just gone. ripped away. Like, what a great surprise. What a shocking yeah. surprise. Oh, a wise Fremen in his home turf felled by... An advancing assault from Sardaukar, who, as we know, are the elite troops of the Imperium and who we've seen sort of getting clowned, finally show <laughs> exactly. that this might not always be the case. Finally. Yeah. Finally. Oof. Well, that concludes chapter 25, Matthew. Oh, did I say chapter 25? That concludes chapter 24. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to hit this one for us? Ooh, it's time to hit it. This one begins. 
Muad'Dib could indeed see the future, but you must understand the limits of this power. Think of sight. You have eyes yet cannot see without light. If you are on the floor of a valley, you cannot see beyond your valley. Just so, Muad'Dib could not always choose to look across the mysterious terrain. He tells us that a single obscure decision of prophecy, perhaps the choice of one word over another, could change the entire aspect of the future. He tells us, The vision of time is broad, but when you pass through it, time becomes a narrow door. And always, he fought the temptation to choose a clear, safe course, warning, that path leads ever down into stagnation. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. God, you read a lot of books. Yeah, that's intense. <clears throat> yeah, that's a lot. It's very literally describing the limits of prescience and like what, like how it is not just some like objective power that is limitless. Mm, I like that. I like that. That's good stuff. Yeah, man. This shit. this is really good shit. The, the vision of time is broad, but when you pass through it, it it, uh, it be time becomes a narrow door. Uh, it also kind of suggests limits to his perception, right? I would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I understand they use the metaphor of the valley and not seeing beyond the mountain. That one would have to ascend the mountain to see beyond a type of thing. Right. Like that, the, the vision can always be there, but that it can be clouded. That there's that it's impo- it's possible for it to always be obscured and and moved around, and it's not always like this constant. Got it. Yep. Um, I also want to make a. Uh, just just to uh, flesh out a little bit what I said on the chapter before, which was, I I don't know if I ever explicitly said rationalism, but I was trying to say rationalism versus empiricism, right? The okay. idea that, you know, the idea of sort of something from nothingness, so to speak, or more specifically, I think in philosophy, it's, uh, you know, there are things which exist beyond perception that we have to intuit, right? Versus empiricism, which relies on like measurable stuff. Mm, right, right. Which I think this book kind of deals with a lot of that stuff when it comes to the Benny Gesserit and shit like that. Whereas a guy like Thufir Hawat is much more of an empiricist, you would say, right? Mm, right, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty cool. How can he measure the data? Right, absolutely. <clears throat> but I was just thinking about that. I was like, did I? I don't know if I, I kept, I, I was. I was uh, getting at the religious part of that more specifically as it relates to this book a little bit. But that aside, we are right into it, man. Right in. Paul grabs his mother's arm. Don't move. Because they are being pursued. But I love this. Talk about <laughs> talk about perception. Talk about senses. <laughs> Here's a man who watches the way a craft moves and goes, oh, that's Duncan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not because he can see into the windshield of the craft. No, nope. just because he can he can perceive the type of flying, the style of flying, the erraticism of the movements. Yeah, that's him. That's I know that person. That's in, that's incredible. <laughs> it's amazing. It's superpower shit. Yes. So anyway, two figures. Uh, they they land. Two figures in fremen robes roll out, and Paul recognizes Kinds. This way, he calls to them to get in. And uh, I love how Idaho runs over and he just says, well, Lord, the Fremen have a temporary hiding place nearby. And uh, as they're talking, he says, well, we left them a little. There's this glaring white light that fills the desert. 
bright as a sun, etching their shadows onto rock floor, yeah. onto the rock floor of the ledge. In one sweeping motion, Ido had Paul's arm in one hand, Jessica's shoulder in the other, hurling them down off the ledge into the basin. Boom. <laughs> Fucking awesome. nuclear bomb. More or less. It's subatomic fusion. That's a dangerous weapon. He's like, not a weapon, my lady, but a defense. That scum will think twice before using las guns another time. So he set a little See, trap for them. Right. And dude, I, like, I love how this is both like an impetuous trap, how it's like it was risky and, and, and kind of ludicrous even you know, to try just because it's so fucking dangerous and unstable. But also there was some real strategy to it that Duncan had of like that literally might prevent all of their forces from using laser guns for a while. Like yes. that might actually halt things. Like there was there was a, st- a strategic move to that. I think that's so fucking cool. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and to be clear, to link it back to the last chapter, the the purple, the flares, everything they saw, everything that Jessica and Paul saw was still there as Idaho came to them, and then they all got blown up because he left them the shield. So just linking back what they saw in Idaho's arrival to to keep the continuity of the story, right? And right, uh, right, right. away they go. <laughs> <laughs> but I like we this. Into... this the, yeah, yeah uh, they, off they go. They're, 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 they got to get out of here. They, they dive down in this basin. And immediately Idaho, uh, Idaho says, that blast will attract, <laughs> attract considerable attention, sire. Sire, Paul thought. Here we go into the minds of our characters yet again. And uh, he considers how strange it sounds because it was always reserved for his father, wasn't it, Matt? Always. Always and only. Yeah. Felt himself touched briefly by the powers of his prescience, seeing himself infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. Yes. This, this is the moment where he's overtaken by his prescience, by his powers here. Yes. And uh, it actually leads you know, to him leaning on Duncan. And as Duncan moves him, what I... What I find so cool about this scene is that that small moment where as Duncan is leading him because he's being overtaken by his vision, um, you know, he tells Duncan, keep your shield. I don't need it. Your right arm is shield enough for me. And it's this small moment of him complimenting and, you know, acknowledging, you know, the competence of Duncan and Jessica sees the way the praise took effect, how Idaho moved closer to Paul. And she thought such a sure hand my son has with his people. I love that because it reminds us that Paul still like we're we're getting this very new almost version of Paul who's struggling with these two new realities of that he is both the duke and has that responsibility yes. and he is something else and beyond that as well mm-hmm. and he's coming to terms with just being being able to to see what he can see now and what that means for for what he even is you know what he is and then also who he is as far as you know, his responsibilities and his loyalties. Um, but what we see in this moment is that he can still balance it, like that he can still very much be the Duke, uh, the, the one that they know, the one that they care about. He can be the Atreides that, they, that his men need. Yes, great point. And it's this marriage of the two, right? Or this uh, uh, merging of the two as he gets older, as he goes through this very traumatic ex- experience where he's, Again, we know what he's saddled with. We know where he is, yet we see him still rising above it to be that which many believe he will, the Bene Gesserit specifically. Well, kind of. <laughs> right? In a, in in a backward sort of way. Perhaps <laughs> that's reserved for the girl child in her belly, but 
But uh, we do know that he is, in fact, the Duke. <clears throat> yes, indeed. It's official. It's official. Now, conversely, we have Kynes considering the situation he finds himself in. So it's Kynes in Idaho. They show up with a couple others, and, and then we have them meeting up with Jessica and Paul. And now they're all together. And Kynes starts to think to himself, why am I helping these people? It's the most dangerous thing I've ever done. It could be, it could doom me with them. And then he turns and almost in this movie moment, looks squarely at Paul and sees the boy who had taken on the mantle of manhood, masking grief, suppressing all except the position that now must be assumed, the dukedom. And Kynes realized in that moment, the dukedom still existed. And solely because of this youth, and this was not a thing to be taken lightly. That is a very insightful moment for the reader into Kynes. And it is so because we've known Kynes' perception and perspective and behavior, remember the dinner, to be a Fremen, right? This has Fremen and Imperium quality, doesn't it? Because he's considering yeah. the dukedom and how it's still alive, and that's not a thing to be taken lightly. That that tag almost has a Fremen quality to it. And and what a complicated character to write for, right? We we are, we're taking all of the chaos we saw in the discussion between the Fremen and and Hawat and merging it into this one character and and making him interesting and formidable all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that he's so accepted, especially sure. Um. But no, dude. One thing this makes me think about is. It makes me think back on Thufir's dilemma when he's talking about, you know, how could there ever be evidence to present to the Landshrad to actually make our case, to actually show the corruption and show that the emperor had his hand in this? Yes. Um, and the answer to that is the very existence of Paul. Mm. Um, that 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 he is the 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 remnant of of the um of the the House of Trades that keeps it alive, that keeps it. You know, at the end of the day, if Paul's alive then he is actually the duke and you know, there's there's no there's no reassigning that there's no taking that away um and by him being alive it keeps them alive in the house of the landshrad and it's also he can attest to what happened <laughs> like just in <laughs> sure. simply in that in that way that means a lot <laughs> this uh, this this scene sort of strays into the discussion of this uh, the, one of the imperial ecolog- ecological testing stations that his father wanted, and I find it intense that Kynes takes exception to this. He thinks his father wanted. Am I foolish to aid these fugitives? Why am I doing it? I'd be so e- it'd be so easy to take them now to buy the Harkonnen trust with them. Right? He <laughs> considers how right. easy the betrayal would be in this moment. Yeah. And dude, I can't, when I think about being in this position, I cannot blame him for considering those options. Of course. I just really can't. Of like, course. Yeah, dude, of course. What does this have to do with you at the end of the day? Right. Right. It, 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 it's, it's a consideration. He, despite dances with Fremen, he still is like, ah, I'm an imperial ecologist. I'm here on a mission. I serve the emperor. <laughs> The emperor has it in for these people. Why am I here? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> why am I? Why am I interceding at all? How My life you, is set. How did you like this look into the Fremen life? This place, instruments and 
dials Ooh. glowing and wire grids and so much more advanced than I expected. Indeed. Um, and I mean, we had teases about that of like, they must have relatively advanced technology, even compared to any of the major houses, uh, advanced technology to produce the still suits that they were making. Like we had some kind of teases about that and that there is possibly more industry within them than, than is accounted for by the emperor. Um, but at the same time, I still didn't expect them to be able to, in one of their hideouts, like I thought that was like some deep underground shit, maybe in their most innermost layers, they have like, that's where they, they keep all of their technology. But no, even in just like one of their little hideaways, a, a side spot for them, it's outfitted with all of this stuff. It's outfitted mm. with animals. It's, it's mm. outfitted with all this equipment. And it's like, do they have stashes like this all around the desert, just everywhere? Um, because that really makes you start to see their capacity in a different light. Absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> they don't seem like, you, you know, they seem to have this grasp of technology beyond what we would have ever considered based on how they're presented thus far. <laughs> right, right. You would never have been able to to infer this much. We learned that Liette and Kynes are the same person. Oh, that is a good point. Oh my that God. That matters. I, I actually went past that. Yeah. Right, that matters. And then we also learned that... Um, Jessica is paying very close attention to the way Kynes operates here. He's clearly the leader, right? She notes the easy rumble of the man's voice. It was a royal voice accustomed to command, and she had not missed the references to him as Liette. Liette was the Fremen alter ego, the other face of the tame planetologist. Kynes, <laughs> the planetologist, Liette, the Fremen. Yes, indeed. And he says, spice coffee in my quarter, Shamir. And he leads them in, and they're going to have a amazing conversation. There's going to be uh, good stuff here happening between Kynes and Paul. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And dude, just another quick moment uh, in on Paul that I really like in this in this section, um, where we see kind of his 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 abilities kind of stretching out again. Where when they first walk into the room and they they're kind of like assessing the the shape and the size of this room and what you know just what they're walking into they're yes. very cautious and paranoid at this point you can't quite blame them um, but he it goes Paul remained standing for another eye blink a faint anomaly in the room's air currents told him there was a secret exit to their right behind the filing cabinets. Just that level of ability and awareness. That's, I, just, uh, I love <laughs> that description. Yeah, I call that uh, advan I call that old school advanced Dungeons and Dragons, where the thief can detect <laughs> secret doors. <laughs> Fuck, it's so perfect. Right? You rolled a twenty, baby. He just is like, oh, I think there's a secret door over there. It used to be a percentage check back in the day, but but yeah, I love that. I love the description of the way. He comes to the knowledge of this secret door. Secret yeah. exit yeah. is a better way to say it. <laughs> um, so it's funny. I had that paragraph highlighted as well. And then, of course, more specifically, will you sit down, Paul Atreides? And Paul notes how carefully he avoids my title. <laughs> and uh, yes, this is, this is uh, where they start talking about how, oh, Horacus could be a paradise. Yet you see the Imperium sends here only its trained hatchetmen, its seekers. And Paul just says, do you see this ring? Yes. Do you know its significance? Jessica stares sharply. She's like, what are you doing, Paul? 
<laughs> and I love the answer, how unceremonious from Kynes or Liet in this case. He says, your father lies dead in the ruins of Arakeen. You are technically the Duke. We know. <laughs> technically. Right. We, I like how Jessica senses the steel in this man, right? This, we know that Kynes is not one to really be browbeaten by anyone. We've never, we, I mean, he told a man at dinner he would kill him. We witnessed that. He said <laughs> right. he would kill him right there if he continued what, you know, he, he implied, we will, you'll die tonight if this is going to be the way this will be, right? <laughs> exactly. And Paul flips this a little. He says, I'm a soldier of the Imperium, technically a hatchetman, right? <laughs> that I, yeah, that he, his authority or, you know, his allegiance still is always finally to the Emperor, just yeah. like Kynes. And Kynes says, even with the Sardaukar standing over your father's body? And he says, aha, the Sardaukar are one thing. The legal source of my authority is another. Ooh, and he, this is an even better line. Arrakis has its own way of determining who wears the mantle of authority, says Kynes. <laughs> In other words, the law of the wild exists out right. here, son. Period. <laughs> You will is live that, and die based on how Arrakis determines you will live and die, not how it is determined by way of tradition or law. There's only one law out here in the wild, son. That's and, it. Uh, and uh, we w- it's a big old we will see. We will see. It's a, it's a big old we will see. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when Paul realizes that he is going to impart what he plans to do. And he says, I will give the Padishah Emperor reasons to fear. And Kynes interrupts him and that's it. Paul says, you will address me as sire or my lord. And Kynes <laughs> obliges him. Sire, Kynes said. <laughs> now, what I like about this is that immediately Paul knows, just like he knew how to compliment Idaho, even if he wasn't trying to, it just worked, right? <laughs> right. He, he knows how to back off. And almost be self-deprecating in a sense because he says, I am an embarrassment to the emperor. But that's not what he's really saying. He's saying my existence is an embarrassment to the emperor because it highlights failure. Right. Exactly. Right. As I live, I shall continue to be such an embarrassment that I stick in their throats and choke them to death. Mm. (laughs) What a great pledge for vengeance. Indeed. I will continue to exist. Indeed. Yes. Kind sort of scoffs at this by calling it just words, but it comes up again where they are talking about the legend of Lisan al Gaib, the voice from the outer world, the one who will lead the Fremen to paradise. What do you think about Kind's response to this when he says this is superstition, essentially? This surprised me because mm. we have seen a lot of the of the internal thinking of of Kinds of thus far and a lot of times it was shock over, over how much Paul does, in fact, fit the prophecy. And that could be just his own, you know, secular, in a sense, uh, understanding of like, wow, it's, it's shocking that it, that it fits that prophecy of this culture that I'm now a part of. That's surprising to mm-hmm. actually see in person, but whatever. And maybe now he's only, you know, he's, he's still questioning it altogether. Um, but I, for a while, was thinking that he was more of a believer than he let on. Indeed. Indeed, and maybe uh, I, I've thought about this line quite a bit more than I probably should uh, in a given day. But I just thought, is this Kynes pushing the superstition back into his, into Paul's face to sort of test his faith? Yeah, 
Is it yeah, possible no, he's too. spinning it back at him saying superstition? Right. Almost like right. that moment where you're having a conversation with a, you know, a very philosophical priest and you say something to sort of affirm your belief in God. And he says, yeah, but what about this? He's not doubting <laughs> his own faith. He's wondering if you've thought this through through for your own, right? For yourself, right? So it's it's possible we're getting to that with kinds. I, I don't, I can't say for certain, but if I was to speculate, maybe. But I also like what you're saying is, remember this man is of the Imperium too. It's, there are these lingering beliefs. He is dances with, with Fremen. And maybe there is something about that where he is a man caught between two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, dude. That's really good. <laughs> I just got kind of lost in your words there. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all That's the time. Good. As long as you don't well fall said, asleep. Baby. As long as you don't fall asleep, I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, could your Fremen provide me with proof positive that the Sardaukar are here? So this gets into what is the logistics plan. Paul has a yeah. plan today, Matthew. Paul has a plan. And his plan is... Can you prove to me the Sardaukar are here in Harkonnen uh, uniforms, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we already know that Fremen, yeah, I can rustle you up a body of a Sardaukar in Harkonnen library. We got some of them laying around for right. sure. Let the emperor face the possibility of a bill of particulars laid before their lens shroud. Let him answer there were, right? Ooh, yeah. Uh, here's what I... The, the, Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say the larger, the larger threat to the emperor that that Paul really has in his hand starts to come out here, and it is it is through the land shred. It is through the unity of the land shred, um, and the idea that if one can be picked off by the emperor and that's allowable, then you are allowing that to continue. You are allowing that you know the individual houses of the land shred may start to be targeted and destroyed. And does that really do anything for their equal standing with the emperor? Mm. That becomes the question. Mm, interesting. Let me go back a few pages. When my father, the Polish emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death in the Minero, he went to <laughs> such a rage, Matthew. Right? And then we let's go back to that for a second. Uh, where, where it is said, I... Um, I sought to comfort him. Uh, I saw that he had been aroused to this passion now by concern over the dead dupe about what the death implied for all royalty. We're getting back to that, aren't we? Finally. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That, this, that, this, right? This is this plays directly into that, I would say. Yeah. No, absolutely. The <clears> idea <throat> that now the royalty themselves can feel threatened and feel targeted because it's been shown to you know to be the proof across the galaxy that look that we we targeted and destroyed you know an entire house despite the fact that they are you know of this standing of this royal position it just doesn't matter we destroyed them we obliterated them right. that very idea that idea floating out there as as a reality to the landtrad will create chaos yes and that's jessica's fear right war between the the imperium and the great houses chaos but I'd present my case to the emperor and give him an alternative to chaos. Blackmail, Jessica wonders. One of the tools of statecraft, of use, as you've said yourself, right? He's throwing your <laughs> teachings back on him. The emperor will not risk having the Imperium shattered by total war. Planets blasted, disorder everywhere. He'll not risk that. Kynes is like, this is, this is a gamble. But Kynes seems yeah. interested, right? I imagine he is in my head anyway. <laughs> Paul continues, they fear most what is happening here 
right now on Arrakis. He's talking about the great houses in the land shroud, right? The Sardaukar picking them off one by one. That's why there is a land shroud. This is the glue of the great convention. Only in union do they match the imperial forces. <laughs> Let's step back for a second and think about what Paul's saying here. Right, right. House Atreides that- has been destroyed by the treachery of House Harkonnen with the help of the Imperium. Now, imp- now that's why the Sardukar evidence is key to this. The only person who commands Sardukar is the Emperor. That's the key to the puzzle that could make the connections. If it was Harkonnen treachery against an age-old vendetta, Canley, you name it, their enemy, their old foe, the Atreides, the rest of the houses go, that's what happens sometimes. But we still exist in relative peace and harmony, and we go about our lives. But if they realize that the emperor had it in for Leto, and that he engineered the destruction of House Arrakis, and you are a great house, and you sit on the counts of the Landshrod, you start looking around for friends. And that is bad news for the emperor, which is why he flung himself into a rage at the idea of the duke dying. Maybe, maybe that was too much. Maybe he assumed he'd be captured or capitulate. I guess we'll get into that. I guess we'll get into that as we go. But no, that's not the case. Now you start going, oh, wait a minute. I don't know about this. There is, um, there is, I don't remember who's talking about it, but there is this, um, this, uh, there's this thing with alpha chimps where if they are too domineering, the other chips will fucking tear them apart. They'll gang up on them. Okay. (laughs) It's very kind of human, (laughs) strangely enough. And I, I feel like we're seeing this played out in a much more uh, sort of politically intense uh, or sort of intrigue-based setting. I love this. I love this setup here. I love that the emperor knows that should the great houses decide that he's a problem, they're going to gang up on them. The land shroud exists to have a voice for the house collective, right? Right. Right. Exactly. How it equalizes them with the emperor. Yes. This, let's distill this down to something maybe some of our uh, mafia-loving friends would have. If there was a <laughs> family boss and a table of capos and a capo was killed and the boss did nothing, he'd be seen as weak and not protecting the rest of the capos, right? Right. In a right. very simple sense, that's what this is. Exactly, exactly. And then, the fact, oh, I mean, you're this, part of it? Oh, you're part ex- of it. Exactly. Now you got to go, say. right? Now you get a 22 in the back of the head. That's when you know, all your all your Roman senators get together and stab you to death. That's what happens. <laughs> that's that. So, yeah, that's their true fear here. Yes. This is what they fear, Paul continues. Arrakis would become a rallying cry. Each of them would see himself in my father, cut out of the herd and killed. The mafia, the, the mafia metaphor stands so strong, right? Exactly. Exactly. A, a ruler with a too heavy of a fist crushing out his own, you know, his own higher ups. Uh, you're just going to get all the rest of the higher ups a team against them. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I like how Kynes looks to Jessica. Jessica, he knows she's a Benny Jesuit. He's like, what? What do you think? And she's like, well, it has good points and, and bad points. And 
this is one of the greatest quotes in the book. She says, a plan depends as much upon execution as it does upon concept. That's like everything we say when we're talking about bad scripts, right? Or good scripts that are bad movies. <laughs> a plan exactly. depends as much on execution as it does concept. We know this. We sit down and we have a, a podcast programming meeting. It doesn't matter how many ideas we have if we don't execute them. It's just yes. talk. <laughs> it's just talk until it's action. And then it's how well is it executed? I have a great idea for movie. This is the other thing. And, and imagine how insulting this must be to a writer. Like like you. You I know you have designs on it. How how often have you heard everyone say, Oh, if I had time I could write a book? That's first of all, <laughs> super I used to say that. And then I and then I realized no, I couldn't because I don't have the work ethic for I don't love it enough to have the work ethic to sit down and do the writing. Right. Once upon a time, I thought maybe I would. I had this romantic idea of living the life of an author who wrote fiction. Right. And then I was like, oh, but you got to write a shitload and read a shitload all the time. And if you're not willing to do the work, you're more in love with the idea of writing than you are with the process of writing. Okay. That diatribe aside, I like that it is all about execution. Like it must be insulting for writers to hear somebody say that. <laughs> if you're a, if you're if you're a writer, imagine somebody going, "Yeah, I could write a book too." Like, "Oh, could you?" Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> you could build a house. That'd be like saying to your contractor, "Oh, I could pour the concrete and build a house too." I just I I got to work this week, so can you do it? But I I could. Could you? I could though. Are you sure you could? <laughs> right? <laughs> In a house that's livable? Yeah. The only exception to the rule is podcasting. Anyone can do that. <laughs> also fine. not going to guarantee how good it is, but you can. Yeah, that, that, that's that one. You can just, just get a microphone. <laughs> ah, oh, shit. Just gab. There's so many great jokes about people starting podcasts. So many great memes. But um, <laughs> but I like I like the, that that's less this. This is but this is this is tangentially related to what to what the book's getting at, which is. You can be, the concept is lovely, but let's talk execution, son. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> let's put it, how are you going to actually put in the work to achieve this? <clears throat> and, uh, but that's the thing here is that, that Paul seems to have a pretty complete plan. Like he's, in, he's anticipating quite a lot. Mm. Yes, he is. And he knows he can't do it alone, right? Yeah, no, that's when, that's when we get into the more awkward part of the conversation as he uh, tries to essentially get the loyalty of Kynes. And Kynes at first is not about it. Because he um, offers coin. Yes, because he thinks that he can get, he can essentially massage this whole situation to the point where he himself sits on the throne. Um, that eventually that, that would be the, 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 the culmination of this plan. And he says... From the throne, I could make a paradise of Arrakis with the wave of a hand. Mm -hmm. This is the coin I offer you for your support. And uh, Kynes, my loyalty's not for sale, sire. <laughs> <laughs> Little shit. I love it. So hold it over me. First of all, if we can step back and, and just have a bit of jocularity here. I love the idea of a 16-year-old kid being like, I'm sitting on the emperor's throne. I'm like, oh, chill out. Hey, listen. Yeah, okay. hey, you're not there yet. Hey, Paul. Okay. Chill out. Listen to me, pal. Chill out. You haven't filled out yet. You're a little skinny, right? <laughs> I know you did kick a guy in the chest and make his heart stop, but let's chill for just a second. 
We're not quite ready for this. <laughs> but here's what I will, to, will, will, will turn this into a compliment for Paul. And I'll even use Thufur Hawat as an example. But Paul immediately assesses this, apologizes, which gets him respect immediately from Kynes because no Harkin has ever made an error. And then he says, you say you're not for sale, but I believe I have the coin you'll accept for your loyalty. I offer my loyalty to you totally. That is an immediate read and react by Paul, where Thufir struggled to get through his conversation with the Fremen, right? That's a great point, dude. Think That's about a really that. Great point. An immediate read and react. Good stuff. He saw what the defense had cooked up, and he, he poked holes in it, right? <laughs> He's like the Tom Brady is- of uh, cultural uh, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Not too many of those out there. Not too many. Yeah, but it's in, in, uh, in Jessica's like my son has the Atreides sincerity. He has the tremendous, almost naive honor, and what a powerful force that truly is. Jessica notes, right? And that's it's a big part of this is all just because that he has the balls to apologize. He yes. doesn't get all caught up in it. He goes, "Well spoken. I apologize." Mm-hmm. That's that. And even a kind says. No Harkonnen ever admitted error. Perhaps you're not like them, Atreides. Yes. Like, that's one of the first time, you know, we've already seen, in, in truth, the internal side of, of Kynes, him assessing the Atreides and saying, you know, I think I like this Duke, and uh, ha- having to admit to himself more and more that he has a growing respect for the Atreides. Yes. But this is like, I, I would say this is kind of maybe that final moment of like, okay, they are truly different. They are different yes. people. Like, he suspected it, he wondered it, maybe he even wanted it, but now it's more confirmed for him. Mm. There are these two watershed moments for Kynes, aren't there? The first one was when Kynes experienced Duke Leto with the carriel trying to rescue the crew. Damn the spice. He'd never heard that in his life. Nobody ever said, right. damn the spice before. Harkonnen doesn't say, damn the spice. The Harkonnen says, if I lose this spice, Harkon- Baron Harkonnen's going to fuck me up. So no, no, <laughs> not damn the spice. Damn the man, get the spice, right? So, right. And then sadly, Leto dies. Uh, excuse me. Sadly, uh, um, yeah, Leto dies, right? He's gone. And now Kynes is in this position where he's like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? I, I, I am, I'm a fugitive. Like, this is crazy. And now we see him <laughs> as it's happening, having his second Atreides watershed moment where Paul pushes this even further. Kynes is saying, it's nonsense. I'm the Duke, blah, blah. I would give my life for you, Paul tells him. And Jessica looks at Kynes and realizes that in that moment, he would give his life for Paul. Done. Yeah, done and done. But (laughs) we are interrupted immediately. This beautiful man crush, this beautiful, great connection between these two (laughs) is a clash of steel. Wax image faces grimacing in the passage. So a a door bursts open. It appears uh, we see Duncan overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. right. This looks really bad. Not good. I, I, I want to to pause here for a moment. I know all I know about Duncan Idaho beyond beyond what I you know have read up to at this point in this book is that I know he's an important character, master swordsman. Um, right, right, and I, like I, I know he is he's he's a large character. He's an important character. Uh, he's a lot of people. Here's the main thing I know about him is that he's a lot of people's I've heard favorite character. They're like that you'll see that on, on in the internet. Like, oh, he's my favorite Dune character, Duncan Idaho. And so there's a part of me that's like, 
no way he dies here. No <laughs> fucking way he dies here. Come on. This cannot... 360 pages in my book of Duncan Idaho. This is all I've seen him do, and this is people's favorite fucking character. No. So I'll admit, I have a slight bit of meta-knowledge poisoning on that on this moment, but I am still left going, what the fuck happens to him, though? What happens to, to fucking... Did Idaho... How many people? Uh, how many people say Boba Fett's their favorite character? Just take the original movies. He's in them no for one. like two seconds, and yeah, a bunch of people are like he's amazing. I love Boba Fett, and they're like he's in it for two seconds and he dies. He doesn't even kill anybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like the Duncan Idaho thing. So it seems. But Ugh, this this description don't ruin it. this don't the, ruin it. Oh, I'm not going to spoil <laughs> anything. This description. Paul had one last glimpse of Idaho standing against a swarm of Harkonnen uniforms, his jerking, controlled staggers, the black goat hair with a red blossom of death in it. (laughs) Just the idea of that head wound. Then the door was closed and there came a snick as kinds through the bolts. Well, we know that that secret exit is going to come in very handy right now. Right now. Glad you rolled a D20 earlier. Yes. Fucking nailed it. Ugh. Yes. And uh, yeah. off they go, and uh, they start making their way out. Uh, they they say, "Well, they're gonna they're gonna they're not gonna use a las gun because there are shields on this side, so it's gonna take them a while to get through. We're gonna buy ourselves some time. We also got this plasteel door that we're gonna shut behind us, right? And uh, we're gonna head out. and uh, And there's a bunch of tunnels in here. We're gonna separate. I guess is the plan. That and is that- it. He decides to to separate off from them and gives them. I do believe he gives them rendezvous point and has a, a thopter ready for them. He does. He does. And um, I love this idea of these illuminating arrows, like a video game under their feet to tell them which way to go as they approach them. And then they dim as they walk <laughs> over them. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> exactly. I thought that shit was so cool. Right. Just the idea of this arrow that kind of like waves light over, you know, under you as you cross, cross it. Hmm. There's this moment as they escape, Matt, where Paul thinks to himself, I'm such a coward. I'm such Ooh. a coward, right? I oh, like yeah. That. No, that, that, that part where he talks about he feels like a coward, but how else to live to avenge your father? That's right. Like having to, it kind of reminds me of Jessica's, you know, moment earlier uh, when she was still in the, the still tent and thinking about like slinking backward and, and just kind of, in a sense, giving up. Um, and the idea that Paul struggles with that still as well of like, I feel like shit about what I'm actually mm-hmm. having to do and deal with, but, but for the sake of this plan, another plan that pushes us along this course of Indeed. destiny. And, uh, this is where, where Kynes parts. He puts a hand on the young, on the young man's shoulder and he says, uh, I'll send from and searching for you. The storm's path is known. Hurry now. And the great mother give you speed and luck. And boom, they bolt off. And Jessica just starts thinking plans within plans within plans. Have we become some part part of someone else's plan now? She wonders as they as they take off into the night. Off they go. As you as you succinctly pointed out, there uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of you know uh, flavor pros here, but um, I, I think the most important part of this is that they eventually reach their ornithopter, right? She thinks Paul's training is her only hope. She, you know, as they, as they get out there and, and then they have to dive headlong into a storm. So they, Dude, get, I, they get out there, I, they get to a thopter and then they have to fly into a storm. Right. 
I could not help but picture the storm from Mad Max Fury Road. Me too. That was the thing. That's so funny. I pictured the entire time. I could not help because it's like that perfect idea of a wall of yep. storm and like going up into it. Um, yeah, that's all I was imagining, man. The idea of this this sand that, you know, again, laid out in earlier parts of the book. Like we get just enough of the pieces of, you know, the actual ecology of Arrakis to start to appreciate the idea of driving into a, one of these storms as being borderline suicidal, um, that, you know, the sand out here whips hard enough to etch bones into slivers. Mm. Um, you know, that's been well established to us as readers at this point. And we now see our characters being forced to just drive headlong into that. Yes. They're um, being pursued. With, they're being pursued. Right. Exactly. And the, but with a little bit of, of knowledge from essentially a Fremen from Kynes, they know to ride the top of the storm. Yes. Um, like that we get that little bit of like insight that we didn't have before that made this, that made this impossible seeming planet to live on a little more possible. Like, like the Fremen fucking have it. And I just think that's such a cool moment of him realizing, okay, like if we ride the top of this, we can, we can survive it and evade the Harkonnens. What I like about all of this is it goes back to something you said in one of the very first episodes you did, Matt, where you talked about, how we were learning about these other men in this book by how they influenced Paul. Remember you said something like that? Yeah. 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 And we see that exactly. here. He's learning. He, he, he remembers what kind said. And now he's thinking about the training he got from Gurney, the way he flies, right? He touched the retractor bar, watched the wings shorten for jet boost takeoff the way Gurney Halleck had taught him. Right. <laughs> so many of these lessons come back. Lessons when he was dealing with kinds. He is an Atreides. How he could get Idaho to call him sire. And obviously, you know, Idaho has been trained. He's been loyal to the family forever. But to not slip up there means something. It means Paul has a presence about him. Something he clearly got from his dad. Yeah. All of yeah, these absolutely. all of these great and influential uh, people in, in his life. We see their, um, all those lessons coming home to roost. And it's good for Paul. Right, right. Yep. And seeing them, seeing these lessons pay off. There's a moment where Jessica just says, Paul's training is her only hope. She taught, she thought his youth and swiftness, period. They're going in and this is it. <laughs> Dude, the fact that this chapter ends with Jessica reciting the litany against fear know. is, is so strong. And the idea that, that of, of all the people involved here, that this, Pretty pretty well seasoned Bene Gesserit is uh, having to go back to something that fundamental to yeah. get herself through. Uh, the the uncertainty of all of this is just palpable. I'm trying to imagine cinematically how it would look in some of these moments where the Thopter is moving through this storm. This particular point here, Matt. The Thopter began rolling off to the left. Paul focused on the glowing globe within the attitude curve, fought his craft back to level flight. Jessica had the eerie feeling that they were standing still, that all motion was external, a vague tan flowing against the windows, a rumbling hiss reminded her of the powers around them. Winds to seven or eight hundred kilometers an hour, she thought. Adrenaline um, edginess gnawed at her. I must not fear, she told herself, mouthing the words of the Bene Gesserit litany. Fear is the mind killer. Awesome. Awesome. Beautiful. But we know that they, um, we know that then he recites the litany, literally. Like he, he recites the entire litany at the end of the chapter, right? Oh, 
Oh, you know what? Yeah, you, dude, I she, I was totally wrong. I thought that was it. That was Jessica doing it. Yeah, she thinks it. it. He Whoops. says it. You're okay. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> I will only I will remain. Good shit. And that concludes chapter twenty-five, Matthew. We are moving along, sir. Yes, sir. How fitting that we would end on a Harkonnen chapter. They've been on Harkonnen the intrigue. Indeed, they've been on the tip of our tongues this entire time. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? This is your chapter now, isn't it? Yep. All right. Here we go, Matthew, for chapter 26. Do you want to give people a page check-in? Sure thing. Uh, where we're at in my copy, the uh, the Penguin paperback, we're on 371. Oh, so am I. Crazy. Ooh, nice. Awesome. And I'm we synced I'm, back up. I'm, on the, I'm, I'm running this Kindle shit now. Okay. <clears throat> we start as such. What do you despise? By this, you are truly known. (laughs) There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. How often have you watched people being obsessed with something that they despise and it turning into them, right? (laughs) Right, right. And and, and it defining them. Yeah. And as well as just the people's choice in what to despise. It says a lot about their view of the entire world. Uh, when when you understand what somebody is animated to hatred over, how about the um, how about the staring into the abyss? Right, isn't that the the Nietzsche quote? Right, you're look, looking into the abyss, and the abyss will look back at you. Right, just this idea of how you can fall into you you can become that which you hate. Essentially, that that's very. We see this in comics a lot, right? Batman sort of sinking to the edge of lunacy to do what is necessary, becoming that which he hates, gazing into the abyss and sort of just losing yourself in it. And, uh, and that's why, what do you despise by this? You are truly known. That's even suggesting, I mean, despise is such a strong word, right? Yeah, despise. It's like right up there with loathe. Exactly. Okay. And to be clear, I don't know if it, you know, maybe the abyss quote doesn't quite apply as much because it's possible that this could just be a, a tool used to define you and maybe by others. If you don't know much about somebody and you just know what they despise, it kind of informs you as to how they are, right? For you, yeah. you start going, oh, I think I know a little bit about this guy. He really hates, I mean, he freaking hates the Yankees, okay? Like <laughs> despises them. Now, that might be a bit flippant and maybe even a little silly, but it tells me he probably is a baseball fan. It probably, he, and maybe he's a Red Sox fan. And maybe he has been for many years. And many he's, maybe he's lived through many disappointing Red Sox seasons, right? I don't, I'm inferring this because I know what he despises, but I don't really know. But that's how it starts. Maybe that's kind of the point, right? I know what you despise, right. so now I'm going to start to sort of with deductive reasoning concluding that which I think might also define you. Because right. I know, that, right? If I, if I know what you despise, I can probably figure out what you care about. <laughs> exactly. Which, which is to help to really, to truly know somebody, you know, their, their, you know, their, their fears and their desires, you know, you know, all these things about them and, and maybe just intuiting that which they despise gives you a little something. It might be a, a negative way to go about perceiving somebody, but we're talking about a Harkonnen chapter. So here we go. <laughs> well, there we go. Fine. <laughs> can be judgmental. Let's go. Um, this chapter opens with Nefud, 
This guy is a, a new captain, if we recall. Right. <laughs> Recent, <laughs> recently promoted. Recently promoted on account of death to the other one because he inhaled poison um, uh, after the Duke put down on his tooth, as well as the departure of Pita de Vries. And um, he's reporting to the Baron that they are dead. He's referring to Jessica and Paul. He says it is they a are certainty. Dead. A it certainty, is, indeed. I love this open. I love Baron Harkonnen. He's such a good character. He is a really good character. I just love how nervously, how much uh, Nefud keeps repeating the word certain. certain and Baron says nothing. Dead. And right, just, he lets him sweat. Yes, literally, I was going to jump to that. Let him sweat a little, the Baron thought. One must always keep the tools of statecraft sharp and ready. Power and fear, sharp and ready. <laughs> So he's just lording fear over this guy, knowing this guy must answer to him and saying nothing to his report. It's beautiful. Have you seen their bodies? (laughs) (laughs) And the food's like, "Uh uh-oh, well, um, well, they... There's a storm, you know, the storm's like rend steel, you know, melt flesh, you know, that whole thing. I think they're gone. I think it's safe to say... But he just keeps, and he blathers. And the Baron just watches him. Watches the <laughs> tightness in his mouth, the difficulty in swallowing. And he says it again. You have seen the bodies? <laughs> My lord, um, he, I, he just is kneeling this guy. I love this. Keep the tools of statecraft sharp. Also, learn a little bit about the man. We learn a lot about people under pressure. You know, it's it's easy to think you know somebody when everything's hunky dory, isn't it? <laughs> you right. learn a lot about shit. Hadn't gotten dicey. That's right. You you know the Baron's onto something. You learn a little bit about something when you use fear and malice. <laughs> <laughs> we should we you should look. use a lot more intimidation and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah let's go back to that mafia table let me tell you something those guys are distinctly aware of the of the fortitude of the guy sitting next to them <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> <laughs> well they continue uh his face goes bone pale and i love the, the this is where the baron's being a sociopath really comes through. This is his Patrick Bateman type of thinking, right? Look at the chicken, the Baron thought. I'm surrounded by such useless clods. If I scattered sand before this creature and told him it was grain, he'd peck at it. Just that (laughs) arrogance and that disdain he has for other people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking they are so beneath him and on yeah. every level. Like yeah. they, they're not just an animal; they're an animal that picks at the dirt to eat crumbs. And they, he's like, "Well, I had a whole lettuce to them." Yeah, yes, my lord. Look how he blurts out this answer, right? Just that he in a dude. I this is this is predatory shit. This is predatory shit. I don't know if you've ever been in conversations like this where you are the Baron, maybe in a little bit less of a serious situation. But but I think you know, I think you've maybe even experienced this recently, right? Where somebody's just like, you can just see the way they're responding that you know that they're afraid of, of something being exposed here, right? You can sense it. <laughs> right. You can sense it. It's great. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about, dude. Or just, yeah, just when people are, they have a guard up that you realize and you're like, oh, I see this pitiful guard you're holding up and I don't, I don't know why you're holding it up, but it's there, clear as day. And you don't think I can see it. Of course. <laughs> of course. But um, Kynes comes up in the food. Uh, he, he reports misgivings about Kynes. And here is another great moment, right? I'd stake my reputation on it, my lord. The Baron thinks, his reputation. And he just says, <laughs> have the man killed. And boy, does that put your reputation on the line. Ooh, that's a great Think point. about yeah. that, right? Your reputation, huh? Yeah, you go kill the one imperial employee that we have to fucking deal with. Yes. That we answer to the emperor for. My lord. Merc his ass. My lord, he's, a, he's an imperial planetologist. His majesty's own servant. Make it look like an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you staked your reputation on it. What I love about, this is what I mean. When you are dealing with this type of situation, there is no bullshit, right? <laughs> you might say in a friendly, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, this reminds me of, Oh, I know things are really hard right now for you and it's crazy and anything you need. I need about four grand. <laughs> I need about four grand and I'm going to come to your house for three weeks. Is that cool? Oh, right. Everybody says shit they don't mean, right? They're just, and I'm not saying they're being scumbags. They're just trying to be nice. And the food maybe is trying to just be a suck up. He's like, my reputation on it. And the Brown says, kill him. Kill them then. Right? That's what I love about these interactions with the Baron. They cut to the core of of the stuff that makes people, the frailties of people. That stuff he's good at just picking. He can that's he brought down House Atreides in like ten minutes. Okay. So the Baron <laughs> knows something, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he fucking does. <laughs> Dude, that we've talked about this before. Like you know, and we've even brought it up, the the idea of the David Lynch movie. And one of the biggest problems of that movie is that the Baron was a fucking joke. Like, it was mm-hmm. a completely a good joke villain. There was nothing to him. Yes. He was just, I'm bad and I have resources to be bad at people, so I will. Like, it just kind of all just boiled down to that. Like, he was just a shitty guy who wanted power. Okay. Yep. Super interesting. Um and this Baron is is just so complex. And and I love that we get to see a lot of contradictory things about the Baron within this chapter. Absolutely. Like we get to see him being so perceptive and so smart. And you're like, damn, like he really is formidable. And then you see his glaring oversight oh. at the same time. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Such a ba- it's such a bad oversight. We're, we're, we're going to talk about oversight. that in just a minute. And we've hinted at it in, in previous chapters, but... I like how he does not let Nefood off the hook for this at all <laughs> because Nefood starts putting up the roadblocks because he doesn't want an Imperial planetologist's blood on his hands. Right. Right. Not at all. <laughs> and he's like, well, this, and they have him. And he's like, it can be done. He keeps using this phrase. If it is handled correctly, Oof. if it is handled correctly, you can do this. In other words, the Baron is saying, and then the Baron already knows how, that's why he's brilliant. He already knows how he would do this. He knows how this would be executed, right? Right. Like he and, envisions himself literally doing the talking. He knows what he would do. He knows what he would do. <laughs> and um, that's when 
the Baron gets a very nice piece of information today, doesn't he? Ooh, wait, which part? That they have a Mentat captured as well. Oh, the, yes. They find out about our boy, Thufir. Yes. Who's going to make great sport, Nefud clumsily says. <laughs> this gets into the complexity of the Baron, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is... When we this was a a big shock to me. I'm not gonna lie. Awesome. You know, first time coming at this, I I did not expect the Baron to take this route. And then I also the the shock for me is I'm not sure which way Thufir will go on this. Um, mm, because what we come to what we come absolutely. to learn about all of this is that uh, the Baron wants Thufir to be his replacement mentat. Yes. Like Piter is now gone and gone too soon. He he didn't ha- he wasn't ready to have him strangled yet. Um he <laughs> he still had needs and uses <laughs> for Piter and he needs to replace him. And knowing that Thufir is out there and alive and captured now. He's like, "Well, that's it. Essentially, time to roll out the red carpet. Let's bring Thufir on board." I mean, yeah, we're going to slowly poison him and be feeding him the antidote to keep him alive. He's not going to know that because <laughs> I'm the fucking Baron. Right. But at the same time, like we he he's rolling out this red carpet treatment for uh, for for Thufir because he also knows and remembers that Thufir would have been the one investigating and following yes. all of the leads and following all of the false leads. One of which was that Lady Jessica was the traitor. Correct. He knows that he probably at the minimum thought that at some point, at least thought it. And N- at Nefud best, confirms it. Nafud confirms it. Oh, I forgot that he confirmed yeah. it. Yeah, that's he right. He says, he has spoken only enough, my lord, to reveal his belief that Lady Jessica was this betrayer. And the Baron just says, ah. Because this is perfect <laughs> news for him, right? Delicious. He, he sinks back. I love the, I love the adjectives. Sank back. Right? <laughs> or verb, I should say. Sank is a good word because of the way he's he's moved around, Right. You're sure it's the Lady Jessica who tracks his anger? He said it in my presence, my lord. Let him think she's alive then, right? And more importantly, make him believe that Dr. Yue died defending the house, which he then says, which isn't necessarily untrue. (laughs) I love that little tag. What a son of a bitch the Baron is. (laughs) (laughs) Like, well, which, I mean, he did fucking murder my boy. In a way, this may even be true. I mean, he... And this is where he says, I don't understand, right? And the Baron simply says, the way to control and direct a mentat is through his information. False information, false results. And that's when, that's when, they, get, that's when they get into the logistics of exactly how they're going to do this, right? right. How they're going to, to slowly, you, you mean like turn Hawan? Mm, yep, exactly. Like you already said, he needs to replace the late Piter DeVries. They're going to feed him small doses of poison, uh, and the antidote, and then this will become part of his diet. We'll hold it in reserve to withdraw if necessary, right? The same poison, by the way, found in the Duke's tooth, so we know it's deadly. And um, the other part of this is the truth about Yue can never be known. The plan is, of course, to woo Hawat with certain truths of the Atreides' demise. Undeniable truth. Undeniable truth, Right? What do you think he he means by that in that sense, the undeniable? Here's what I think he means by that. I think this gets back to the earlier chapter, right? What am I on page 375? Let me go back a little. I think uh, I think this is 
uh, let me let me give me just a second to flip back my page here to one of these beginnings. Was it this one? Not that more deep could see the future, but the one where um, where they're talking about the truth, right? We we led up to this a little earlier by talking about how deception has always been a weapon wielded, especially especially competently by Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, right? Yeah, we talked about that a lot. Um, so that earlier chapter was this is profound thinking. If you understand how unstable the truth can be, truth comes close to being the basis of all morality. But back to the truth versus deception and how we're going to use the truth, right? Here's what I mean by this. The undeniable truth to a mentat is here is what happened and here is how it happened. And you cannot deny the reality of what happened, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to, he, he's going to believe the undeniable truth of what happened. Your house was weak. Your house could not afford to pay you the way they should have to properly secure the house. These undeniable truths and the truths of the Atreides' demise should be a compelling argument to Huat, who is a mentat, right? A mentat who sees the frailty that is House Huat and to know that he failed. There's just an undeniable truth to that that he can't right. get past. And that's going that's a to. Great point. Right? Think about that. He's a mentat. The truth is that you failed. Yes. You that, failed. That, and that. What does that failure say about your placement there at all and, and your, what your is job it, there? Right. And what does it say about the Atreides themselves that they didn't have enough, right? Yeah. To do it's, the job. It's, it's intense, man. <laughs> and the moment where he goes on, you know, kind of describing uh, what, what Thufir's problem was, where he says, he had an inferior master, one whose reason was clouded by emotion. Mintats admire the ability yes. to calculate without emotion, Nefud. We will woo the formidable through fear. Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly that. And I mean, yep. and he is, again, he's right on that point. And we've talked about this before with, with the Duke Leto, that what was the source of his power? We talked about some on this episode. Like the source of his real power and his house's power, therefore, was his reputation, was his, his charisma, like his ability, his, his competence. It was his standing more so than the actual, you know, whatever resource number you want to give his house. Um, it was, it was that standing and he was a much more emotional kind of leader. And so you could imagine that even Thufir would follow that thought process of like, well, that's all my, that's maybe that's all that my master really had was his, his charisma. And that wasn't enough. Yes. Um, where could I turn now? Yep. The truth is a powerful weapon. We know how we overwhelm the Atreides. Hawat knows too. <laughs> well, at that, this point, he fucking does. That's brutal, right? That's brutal. That's this idea of it just is the way it is. You know, you, you, your master could not, he was poor compared to us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've and, got that Harkonnen spice money. Hmm. And that's when uh, you know he's he's pretty absent. He's pretty he's really happy with this whole thing. And uh, this is that moment. The absence of a thing can be as deadly as the presence of a thing. Think of air. Think of water. Right. Think of other things we're addicted to. He says and makes the food sweat a little. <laughs> Our poor addicted sweating the food. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Dude, I actually also love this 
this sort of subterfuge he hides behind with getting the Sardaukar to kind of leave him with Howitt. Yes. Uh, where he talks about, Howitt by my side, the Baron thought. The Sardaukar will give him to me. If they suspect anything at all, it's that I wish to destroy the Mintat. That's right. And this suspicion I'll confirm. The fools, one of the most formidable Mintats in all history. Mm-hmm. A Mintat trained to kill, and they'll toss him to me like some silly toy to be broken. I will show them what use can be made of such a toy. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, talking about what I find nice and ironic about that is him talking about other people, uh, you know, devaluing or underestimating things and how that's their problem. Interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Meanwhile, we have him considering all, all of the plans and all the Atreides are dead. Right. He starts to think of power and fear, fear and power. One day Harkonnen would be emperor. Not himself, and no spawn of his loins, but a Harkonnen. Not this Raban. He'd be summoned, of course, but Raban's younger brother, Fade Rautha. So he has big plans for Fade, uh, the Baron, doesn't he? Big plans for the boy. Yes, indeed. We saw that from the very beginning. Yes. Now, one of his mistakes, one of his oversights, is even though he put a lot of pressure on Nefud, we see that he was putting pressure on him in the beginning of the chapter, just as a power play, just to make the man sweat, just to dominate him a little, and then to learn a little about to learn a little about him to see the way he would respond to that dominance. Correct. But mm, that's a good point. Yeah. Then he just, in his thoughts, is like the woman and the boy are dead for sure. Right. Like that's right, a mistake. That's, that's a mistake he's making. In other words, think about that. Think about that conversation with Nafood. Now he went into it thinking, yeah, they're definitely dead. I know. I got the reports. Let me just make the guy sweat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's but there's something there's something bastard. admirable about making the man sweat because the man is just going, I've I know the reports and I stake my reputation on it and empty platitudes. The Baron has a right. point. Did you see bodies? Then kill him, right? He's 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 seeing how much these people are more than just talk. Right. Right. By, and by, you can imagine that he's he's waiting to also to see if the guy will admit any of it like yes. you got to imagine I me mean, like we, we kind of talked about that with, with paul like being able to apologize being able to admit fault and error and we see here this guy utterly incapable of admitting error or, or mm-hmm. being like well actually here you're correct we don't know for sure but this is our our, our most up-to-date report like he can't say that he's like no they're certainly dead for sure T- totally right because then he, he just, because he in. because he walked himself into a situation where now what are you going to do you're going to you're going to just because because say he did admit he was wrong then the then the baron would would he'd ply that against him to to see to make him sweat more he'd be like oh then why are you so quick to please me are you a people pleaser right he would he would you, he <laughs> right. would use it back he would spin it right back on him to make him uncomfortable which is one of the interesting parts of the baron for sure and and treacherous no doubt. <laughs> and you got to imagine that also like the Baron looks at it as like, Oh, look at this coward, like, you know, Absolutely. squirming under my, under my thumb and everything. But it's also like, well, how much of a, of a culture have you created of like, don't fucking piss off the Baron, only mm-hmm. tell him what he wants to hear mm-hmm. or I'll fucking kill you. Right. Which, I mean, he's no Darth Vader. He's not just fucking choking dudes through like no. any, you know, phone calls, but, 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 but <laughs> that's funny. But I think your point is well established because the Baron is a man who is distinctly aware of that reality. I'm sure he the he's aware of of the culture around him. He he's aware of it and he wants to use it correctly. 
Darth Vader is just like, this is the way it is. I'll kill you and I'll keep pressing forward. Right? Darth Vader had no subtlety. None. That's not what he is. He's a fucking blunt instrument. That's what he is. Right? <laughs> right. Whereas, whereas the, the Baron Harkonnen has to, he, he knows, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not, he, he's, he's, he's doing something with direct purpose, not, not efficiency. It's not like, oh, I got to kill this captain and just put the next captain in his place because we have a surp, you know, we have a surplus of, of troops who can just take over. I'm Darth Vader. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. He, he, it is a bit of a culture of fear and maybe even misinformation, but that's probably why the Baron has so many eyes and ears everywhere too, right? Yeah. To see who rises out of it. Mm, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure if people respond correctly, and we're, you know what? This is a great segue into his discussion with Raban. Ah, uh, yeah. A great discussion with the beast Raban. <laughs> Muscle-minded tank brain is how the Baron thinks of him. <laughs> no Mintat, my nephew, not a Piter de Vries, but perhaps something more precisely devised for the task at hand. If Indeed. I give him freedom to do it, he'll grind over everything in his path. Oh, how he'll be hated here <laughs> on Arrakis. <laughs> Which is exactly what the Baron wants. That's a part of his plan, is for the Beast Raban, another one of his nephews, the angry tank nephew, to take over the fiefdom of Arrakis directly. Yes. yes. And to squeeze it mercilessly. Yes. Yes. Not obliterate. Squeeze, Raban. Squeeze. Give it the good squeeze. I love how he just says, the Atreides are dead, the last of them. That's why I summoned you here. The planet is yours again. And he's like, but what about Piter? And he's like, oh, he's dead. And I love when Raban says, you grew tired of him, huh? I like that he gets away <laughs> yeah. with it because he's a nephew, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but like the Baron doesn't even, like just waves that off. He, but, he, but he does teach him a lesson here. He says, you insinuate that I just obliterate a man as a trifle? Just like that, huh? I'm not so stupid, nephew. I'll take it unkindly if you ever suggest by word action that I'm so stupid. And Ramon gets a little, <laughs> gets a little shaky Mary here. He's like, ooh, I don't like this. Uh, ooh. Dude, what a great line earlier, just beyond that too, is uh, you know, when, when Raban is thinking fearfully about, uh, uh, about the, you know, the Baron's capability of violence even towards his own family, uh, he, he talks about he knew within certain limits how far the old Baron would go against family. Mm -hmm. Seldom to the point of death unless there were outrageous profit <laughs> or provocation in it. <laughs> that's something he knows about his uncle the whole time, is that even yes. family. Like, yes. ah, that's, that's no protection. That's no guarantee. But we see two very different men here, don't we? One much more, one much more accustomed to being somebody who can successfully manage something versus a blunt instrument that essentially the second he swears in has taking over the fief, he's on a collision course with probably having a bunch of people rise up and stab him to death a la what, what the emperor fears the land shroud's going to do, right? <laughs> exactly. This guy, Raban, has no real understanding of, of statecraft. He's just a brute. That's, yeah. I mean, they call him the beasts. That's how the Baron Harkonnen describes him. And that's how we imagine this is going to go. But he tells him, never obliterate a man unthinkingly, the way an entire fief might do it through some due process of law. Always do it for an overriding purpose and know your purpose. 
right? <laughs> it's interesting that that's a lesson that the Baron thinks that even Raban still should know because mm. he is about to receive the planet of Arrakis. Yep. <laughs> he doesn't know that, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when Yue comes up. Raban makes kind of an interesting question. He's like, but what about Yue? And he's like, he's a traitor. I suborned a dog to the Souk school, right? You hear me, boy? But that's a wild sort of weapon you don't leave lying about. I didn't obliterate him casually. And uh, Raban says, does the emperor know you suborned a Souk doctor? And this is where the Baron thinks, this was a yes. penetrating question. Have I misjudged this nephew? I love that moment. I love because it's, it's both it's both a surprise for for us and for the Baron about the intelligence of Raban, right? Um, but also, it is a moment of self reflection for the Baron. Yes, I, I like where that that moment where he goes, "Well, maybe I have misjudged him. Maybe mm-hmm. like like he's not he's not that stupid egomaniacal villain who's incapable of self reflection. He has right. that right. He might be a blunt instrument, but that doesn't mean he's not perceptive as to the goings on." Whether or not he can navigate that in a way that nets him the greatest benefit versus just a you know a short term bludgeoning until you're overthrown <laughs> is 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 another story entirely. But but I like how he says we're going to have reports in hands. A false doctor is what we're going to claim that he never was conditioned. That he was a uh, he was he, he couldn't be conditioned because he was it was discovered that he was false. That's the plan. And we're going to get that plan into the emperor's hand before the emperor learns anything else about Yue, right? Right. Anything from the Sardaukar, <laughs> who all knew he was the traitorous fuck. And the Baron considers, I should have even boasted this. I, I like, you know, one of the miss, one of the misses by the Baron in this moment is, is, is gloating over, over breaking or suborning, as he says, a doctor of the Souk school and how it, raises questions in Raban and that the Baron is not happy with the fact that he is thinking about that. Right. He's like, I don't Wait, which part the, the, he, he, when he says, why did I boast this to this fool nephew of mine, the nephew that I must use and discard? He felt anger <laughs> at himself. He felt betrayed the Baron. Right. Betraying himself. Yeah. Be- betraying himself. Cause he gloated over the souk school over suborning him. He, he's gloating over it. And it was a mistake as it raised a question. <laughs> that Raban right. shouldn't be asking about. It must be kept <laughs> secret, Raban said. I understand. Right. I understand. Right. He has to pause to, to reemphasize that. Yes. But this is where he says, I need income. I need income. You have no idea what this costed me, right? That's it. Yeah. Do you have the, even the slightest inkling of how much the guild charges for military transport? This gets back to what Hawa couldn't wrap his head around. And the Baron at this point says... The war was expensive, Raban. You have to squeeze it, but I need income, period. Squeeze income. Remember those words, right? Don't obliterate, don't smash. And he says, if you squeeze Arrakis for 60 years, you'll barely repay us. So that's it. To, to come back to you know, yes. one of my, I guess you'd call it the supposition I had at the top of the show, about how much I, I feel like at this point the emperor must have paid into this into this campaign, um, still goes to show that even after the emperor paid for a ton of it, damn near still emptied out House Arconan. Like mm-hmm. they still had to pay in a massive chunk of theirs, which you got to imagine. Like 
bringing that much military force to bear, and if the emperor is paying for the certainly the majority of it, maybe the super majority of it, like you know, way beyond, um, he's kind of forcing loyalty to himself with the Harkonnens as well. When you think about it, uh, of, mm. of putting the price tag so high that the Harkonnens still have to empty themselves and rely on this plan and rely on the emperor as well. Yeah. I don't know. That's a little more of an out there kind of like tangential thought, but I like it. Yeah. No, I, I'm very intrigued by, uh, by the goings on behind the entire conspiracy. Do you recall when, uh, in the beginning of the book that Leto said, let's see who's stockpiling spice. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yes. So, indeed. and he says that might reveal people who know something we don't and thus potential enemies. I can only imagine how much spice was grifted by the Harkonnen for their time on Arrakis. So remember, they were here for, what, 80 years? It's no surprise that they have a money, but boy, as Hawat's noticing, as the reader's noticing, did they empty everything? Did they have so much? Did they save? Did the, did the Baron's, was the Baron's revenge thought process so out there that, because he's not 80 years old, that when he no. took over for as long as he had it, the barons before him had it and the barons before him had it had their stockpile and their stockpile to the point where they had this or is something else going on here? I'm sure we're going to know as we go on. <laughs> right, right. And he reminds oh, Raban that we bore the entire brunt of the cost. Us. We paid for the solder car, not the emperor. Ooh. Right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they had to fucking dig deep. I'm telling you, the emperor made that shit, made that shit the case. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a brief discussion. It's not a super point about the cannons. And, uh, and the Baron just says, I'm removing them. No, no cannons for you. He's like, you don't need such toys. Okay? Forget the cannons. <laughs> oh. He knows that's going to violate the, the squeeze don't smash a law that he's trying to initiate with his fucking Hulk nephew. <laughs> squeeze don't smash, please. Mm. Yes. Leaving so much shit to you. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, this is where we get to maybe one of the Baron's biggest blind spots in this entire novel thus far, right? They're talking about the planetary population. The, the Baron's talking about 5 million. It's a discussion he's having as this talk with Raban goes on and Raban corrects him and he says, no, 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 no. Don't, does my Lord forget that I was his regent Sidia, uh, Siridar before here. And if my Lord will forgive me, his estimate is low. It's difficult to count a population scattered among sinks and pans the way they are here. And when you consider the Fremen, to which the Baron interrupts him and says, the Fremen aren't worth considering. And even Raban says, the Sardaukar thinks so. For, for <laughs> good reason, since they got their asses whooped out there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, he's and like, even the moment where, he's where like, no, no, uh, no, Raban... Those, those aren't Sardaukar. Those are clearly Atreides men. Those are Thufir-trained men in... in in Fremen uniforms. He so right. can't see it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Even Raban saying, you know, the, the report on what actually happened against the, you know, the, the battles with the Sardaukar, he says, I believe the report. You've no idea what a problem the Fremen were. Mm -hmm. And he goes, perhaps, but these weren't Fremen. Uh, oh, no, no, shit, that's the line you just got to. But yeah, right. like that, that point right there where he's talking about how there's just no way they could have ever actually been a threat. There's nothing that he'll, he'll, he'll ever see to make him believe that these Fremen scum. And you got to imagine, at least this is my take on it, that part of what blinds the Baron here, part of what makes it so impossible for someone like him 
to, to look at the Fremen and realistically assess them and see them for what they are and see their power and their capability and, you know, how long they've, they've been here surviving. It's because I think he thinks they're gross. <laughs> like it's, and, and I think it's kind of that. It is. And I also think he just thinks we were here for so long and, and we were, did what we wanted all the time with no pushback, right? I, I don't think right. he got any pushback from them at all. I think he just did what he did and they just chilled out in the desert and tried to avoid him as much as possible. We know based on what, what Kynes says and others how the Harkonnen were here. And, and I'm sure Kynes did as much as he could to broker some sort of uh, you know peace so they weren't always being subjugated by, by the Baron. And you might be onto something. It could it could just be this racial intolerance type of thing, or cultural intolerance, call it what you will. But also just like they probably didn't give him much of a headache before, and he just thinks, "What are you? What? We were there for eighty fucking years. There's no problem with the Fremen." To which he might have a point, historically speaking, but things might be changing for the Baron, and he needs to pay attention. Right. It is. It is. With everything that we, the reader, know, it is Absolutely. the most shouted, glaring oversight where you're like, how the fuck are you still underestimating <laughs> How are you still doing it? Yep, absolutely. So he starts to talk about the minor houses. And he says, let's not worry about them. Let's worry about the minor houses. We can't let the minor houses go off world and start telling tall tales. So I want you to snatch a hostage from each minor house. Dude. As yeah, far as anyone is- knows, Arrakis must learn this was a straightforward house-to-house battle. Again, this gets back to the mafia table. It's just a beef between two capos. The boss has nothing to do with it. That's it. Right? <laughs> the Duke was offered the usual quarter in exile, and he died in an unfortunate accident before he could accept. Right? So they're going to play this off as Duke Leto Atreides died in an accident, which we know the the emperor doesn't think because he knows about the manner in which the duke died and it threw him into a rage. <laughs> and uh, he was about to accept that that's a story here and any room that there were Sardaukar here must be laughed at. We must laugh off, laugh off that there were Sardaukar here, right? Dude, that is so, that is so good and so well written. Yeah. And it, what I like about it is that it really does hold to this idea that that conflict at this level of these higher powers, these people who are who are truly behind all of the all of the actual warfare, all of the scheming, is that this is how they worry about things. Yes, the idea that no, this needs to be a laughable idea. We need to make we need to make this whole notion, this whole narrative, uh, something that is silly, and yes. that is how they win their wars. Yes, <laughs> the yeah. idea of making certain things unbelievable and other things completely believable that's it now if i can back up just a hair one of the things that raban uh, lets the baron know is that the sardaukar plan to go after the fremen i don't know if he's talking genocide but he's saying they're gonna go after him and the baron is like oh this is great i don't not and again see i maybe he thinks the fremen are gross but i almost feel like he's like Good. That gets the Sardukar out of my hair. He doesn't, he's so, yeah. the, the Fremen are such a non-factor to him. He's like, oh, great. Get the Sardukar out of here. Perfect. Get him away. I don't need people knowing they're around or knowing what's going on. Get him out of my hair. That's perfect. Let him go. That's great news that's, for me. 
Honestly, I think that's that, that's another good illustration of it is that the the Fremen are such a non-factor to him that yeah. that almost illustrates how low he thinks of them so lowly that yes. he doesn't think of them at all. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like such a, a he just whole. He, yeah, he just doesn't consider them at all. And the, and you're right. Like that's the first thing he says is after he learns that the Sardaukar already have a plan to destroy mm-hmm. to literally wipe out all Fremen is what he says is It'll keep the Sardapah occupied. Yes. Hell yeah. Like, it cool. sounds like they'll that be gets busy. The emperor gets the Fremen out of my hair, gets the emperor out of my hair, gets everybody out of my business. Right. Right. <laughs> Funny. Oh, my God. His plans. His plans within plans. Right. <laughs> uh, the smugglers are also kind of ignored. We, we were told that Gurney's among them. Which is which will be interesting to learn about as the book continues. What Gurney's up I'm to? I'm very, very excited to find out where Gurney's at mm. and what he's up to right now. Not gonna lie, it's bugging me. I want to know. Yep. I like uh, <laughs> some of these parting words uh, where he just is 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 saying uh, a tank brain. The Baron thought muscle minded tank brain. They will be bloody pulp here when he's through with them. Then, when I send in Fade Rautha to take the load off them, they'll cheer their rescuer. Beloved Fade Rautha. Benign Fade Rautha. The compassionate one who saves them from a beast. Fade Rautha, a man to follow and die for. The boy will know by that time how to oppress with impunity. I'm sure he's the one we need. He'll learn in such a lovely body. Really a lovely boy. <laughs> so, he has... Boy, poor Rabban has taken a setup, huh? Dude, absolutely. And and what I what I enjoy about this is this whole conversation he has with Rabban is the entire time he's he's going to just simply use Rabban. And that's mm-hmm. not a surprise. He he says he's very upfront about like I'm going to dispose of him. Like yes. he, I have a purpose for him and once that purpose is done, he yep. is nothing to me. Um like that's never hidden from us, but it's interesting how he still takes the time. He thinks of Rabban so lowly because he takes the time to say you still can't over squeeze like i just need you to squeeze mm-hmm. don't do too much like he's still measuring him backward even though he knows all his real purpose is is to be a fucking bastard who's yes. who's over the top a fucking tyrant that the world wants to overthrow mm-hmm. Uh, it's so interesting it's interesting also because the baron finds himself in a difficult position because he needs the money from arrakis Right, right. He still needs the income. He still needs the income. Now, that's not to say he's not going to get it from Fade, but he's hoping that during this process, which is going to be lengthy, he can recuperate some of that money. If if he, if Raban came in and simply exterminated, I think is even a word Raban uses in this chapter, then it wouldn't be a long enough of an oppression for Fade to swoop in like a oppressor, right? It's 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 you want it to be a long drawn out. And in just slow process to where he is seen as a liberator, that the change is welcome versus just this blitzkrieg horrific thing that ends quickly. And then, oh, another Harkonnen's coming in. He wants this planet to the point where they can't wait for anybody different. Anything. Yeah. You know, that's, that's brutal. That level of desperation. Yep. Absolutely. Um, That's pretty much it. I think for this chapter that I wanted to talk about, um, but um, one one other piece. Our sublime Padishah Emperor has charged me to take possession of this planet and end all dispute. That's important, right? He tells Raban that. So we so 
whether or not he's lying to Raban doesn't really matter. That's something that we we weren't sure about. Where is the emperor now? What is he thinking? He's probably thinking, quell this all, shut it down, and keep it quiet. Right. Right, right, that's it. Exactly. Shut down all rumors, all gossip, all secrets need to be clamped down on. And, and Arrakis needs to go back to being simply a place that makes spice and produces great profits for the emperor. <laughs> Amen. That's it. Amen. All right. Well, I think that concludes our coverage of Dune today, sir. That was good stuff. Yes, indeed. Um, we should probably take a pause here. Uh, we got to decide our pages for the next. I think I have them. You already have them? Yep, I, I might have did a little bit. So here's what I think we can do. I okay. think we can do 27, 28, 29, and 30. And let me give you that. So episode 7 will be chapter 27, which starts at the age of 15. He had already learned silence. That's 389. And it goes to 446. So that's about 56 pages. Ooh, okay. And what is the last uh This Fremen religious adaptation then is the source of what we recognize. This Fremen adaptation. It, it, oh, okay. I think I'm, I'm a little too ahead. So you said it's, um, that's the last chapter we read? Yes. Okay. Ah, tell, me, t- t- okay. T- tell me how that looks thickness-wise. Um, yeah, just about there. Looking good so far, honestly. Yeah, I think so. In okay, my, so on mine, that's, that's 389 to 449, which is, sounds perfect to me. Okay, 389 that's to... What? That's only like... No, it's about right. It's about where we're landing. It's about, about 60, 65 pages, yeah. Yeah, so chapter 27, 28, 29, and 30. And just to be clear, that's chapter 27. At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. Chapter 28, we came from Calan, a paradise for our form of life. Chapter 29, family, life of the royal crush is difficult for many people to understand. Chapter 30, the Fremen Religious Adaptation, then, is the source of what we recognize. 27, 28, 29, and 30. That'll be next time. All right? Let's go ahead and put that on the episode. And then if you can get this up to me ASAP, I need to get this out to some peeps. Yeah, no, I will go ahead and do that pronto. Um, Should we go ahead and edit in a little more clean (laughs) exit? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's fine. That wasn't horrific, but... um, so yeah, that's it, man. That's uh, that was a great chapter. That was a great read. I love the Harkonnen chapters are growing to be my favorite. Um, Dude, the I Baron really is so that. interesting to read about. Yeah, absolutely, yep. absolutely. I'm 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 all for all for learning more about the Baron's actual plan, the intrigue, and, and especially as you can tell from my conspiracy mind coming out in this episode, the more about the Emperor involved in it, I'm I'm so about. <clears throat> yes, we we have a very large Imperium. And in, in great world building, but we've sort of narrowed the focus a little of the book, which you need to do. The book needs to be about characters, not places. And you need right, the setting right. to be fleshed out enough to be believable and to give us a playground for our characters to exist in. But yes, uh, things will change a little to give us a little bit more perspective on other things. And I am also looking forward to that, Matthew. That'll be good stuff. So we will see you guys. Uh, we will see you guys next time. And uh, you want to just run through those chapters again and the pages in your book? Just the beginning and the end. You don't have to read them all. Yeah, let's do it. So in, in my book, the uh, the Penguin Paperback, uh, the, our next reading starts at page 389 with the chapter heading, At the Age of 15, He Had Already Learned Silence. Yep. And then our last one ends on page 447 with the chapter heading at the head of that chapter, starting with, 
This Fremen Religious Adaptation. That's what we're going to be reading through. Yes, absolutely. I, I have just about the same. Mine ends on 446. Ooh, getting close. We're still in, pretty fucking close. <laughs> into, yeah, because I got the, the font. And, and starts on um, the same page. Starts on 389. It's just a Kindle version. But anyway, there you there go. Good Perfect. stuff. All right, we're going to get out of here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys next time. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord. Discord.